This week's Creepscast is sponsored by ShipStation. Use my offer code MrCreeps to get a 60-day free trial. Go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in Mr. Creeps. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well and having a great day. This week, we have another amazing collection of spooky stories, guaranteed to give you the chills. Let us begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. 9.84 Feet Under Written by LeDeckard To all the swimmers out there, a hearty welcome. The swimming competition has been postponed for an hour until the storm clears the area. We apologize for the inconvenience and wish you luck in the competition. This can't happen again, moaned Pencil in frustration. For those who are curious, we gave Pencil that epithet because we had no idea what his real name was and because his body was a pencil thin. Are you going to keep whining? I inquired. What's it to you, Jackson? I came here to swim and win the title, and all we've done is stand about. Pencil bemoaned, kicking a rock near his foot after he had finished. Pencil got a dismissive shrug from me, so I took a peek around at the other racers, two guys named Ray and Michael, who were standing behind Pencil like his personal bodyguards. If I created a commotion, they would all pile on top of me, so I decided not to stir things up anymore with Pencil. Dude, chill, Ray instructed. In any case, we're all in the same soul. There's nothing to get worked up about. Though I wanted to disagree, Ray was 100% accurate. Each participant was put into age groups called shoals. Shoals ironically being the name for a group of fish. The younger group races were usually the first in the day and the slowest, while the older group races were last in the day and the fastest. Then afterwards... There is an unofficial race to determine the pool king. This race is filled with the fastest swimmers from each shoal and was usually just for fun. Lastly, there was what was called the floating race. This race was the opposite. What the slowest swimmers of each shoal and rebels who had been expelled from breaking the pool regulations in previous races, constituting the majority of the swimmers. The races were quite streamlined. They occurred every 20 minutes and my next race was a quick 50 meter freestyle race and my dismal day would be one step closer to being over. But Pencil, Ray and Michael, all of whom I knew went to a nearby prestigious city school, displayed shark-like hostility towards me and despite being friendly to me so far, I knew that would change in the pool. However, there is a massive storm in the sky today so the race was put on hold. I was used to having nervousness in the final moments before a race, but the postponements had made it worse. Why are they delaying the swim when it's an indoor pool? demanded Ray. It's a stupid government rule, Michael explained. Seeing as not all the pools are indoor, swimmers swimming outside can be struck by lightning and seeing as they want to keep the schedule of races... They canceled all of them until the outdoor swimmers can swim. Pencil scoffed. This is so stupid. We're stranded here with nothing to do. 
It's possible that they'll simply abandon the event altogether. What's the point anyways? I piped up. You would like that, wouldn't you? Michael sneered. There's no other way to avoid finishing last in the race. Pencil and Ray shared a wiry grin as they laughed beside him. Pencil drew closer till he was directly over me. You're more likely to flop and grab the lane rope until someone yanks you out. Who knows, maybe you'll get CPR from one of the hot lifeguards instead of the old geezer coach who took us here. I shot up to my feet with a bound. Whatever the odds were against me, I wasn't going to sit idly by and let them continue tormenting me without a fight. My brother Alec moved towards me as the door on the other side of the foyer had opened. A volunteer at the pool, six years my senior, had come in the nick of time and had unintentionally broken up the brawl that may have ensued. The pencil retreated and stood obtrusively next to Ray and Michael. He addressed me with a friendly, Hello, Jackson, before continuing, How are things going? The coach went to the bathroom but is since gone and has not returned for over an hour, Ray said with a smirk. I see, he said with a nod of his head. Well, at least you've got your friend with you. Alex said as Ray, Michael, and Pencil smirked around the burst of laughter. You better believe it, I proclaimed. As of right now, I would prefer it if everything ended here. These postponed races have worn me down beyond belief. Nah, no, Jackson. It's done that they're holding everything up like this, he said carefully. No matter where the races go from here, I'll be there to watch, and I'll be cheering for you all the way. You're gonna blow everyone away, I promise you that. Hey, thanks, Alec, I said. He winked and excused himself before he strolled back from where he came. Ray Steinley remarked, No, it looks like young Jackson needs his older sibling to protect him. Can you please shut up? I pleaded. Shut up, guys. Michael commanded his friends. Since he already has plenty to worry about, Michael explained. I have a feeling Steven will be in the water waiting for us when we come back. What? Is Steven some out-of-state swimmer I don't know about? I inquired as to why anyone would be in the water at the start of a race. Pencil sneered. He doesn't know the story, does he? Soon, a smile appeared on all three of their faces and I grew greatly confused. You're trying to scare me out of the pool, aren't you? I stated. All three of them took glances around the poolside before forming a rough huddle around me. It was Ray that began to speak. He's been swimming in this pool for decades and has been here ever since the accident, which happened during an annual swim meet quite similar to this one. Michael piped in. His first race was the sole swimmer in the main event because of his reputation as a loner and outsider in the races. However, he was believed to be the greatest swimmer in the state and broke numerous records. But people say that he never talked, never celebrated his wins and preferred to sit alone. Do you really think I'm that stupid to believe that? That's what I said in response. Michael seemed amused by it. I wish we were making this up. Some others in the pool, though, would have you believe otherwise. My skepticism remained unabated, and Michael, on the other hand, had a sincerity about him that made me wonder whether there was any truth to this. The races that day had been halted by lightning, just as they were today, Ray explained. 
Stephen was shivering and shuddering the entire time he sat alone like he had done many times before. There was a misunderstanding among the pool workers and upon hearing that the meet had been cancelled due to the bad weather, one of these staff members started the pool's emptying operation, as they had done hundreds of times before. But the storm soon dissipated and the races were allowed to continue. The audience was allowed to return and the races were to begin at a moment's notice, Michael said. Soon people noticed that something wasn't quite right. The pool wasn't completely full after the crew began emptying it, and it took some time to fill again, seeing as the races were on again. Regardless, their yells were unheard, and Stephen stepped up to the starting block. It seemed that he was so eager to get his solo race down that he zoned out and failed to listen to those around him. Witnesses say that the lights were so bright that it made it difficult to see the pool, and he assumed that there was water underneath him. Whatever the case may be, he was too focused on finishing the race to notice that there was a lot less water than he had anticipated, Michael had said. When one of the lifeguards saw what was going on, he raised his voice and demanded that the competition be called off. She raised to stop Stephen from diving, but the bell sounded, and the hapless Stephen dove headfirst into the water, Michael said. He dove into the water, but it wasn't deep enough, and he hit his head on the hard surface below. The three of them repeated it in unison, in a scary but genuine manner. Everyone yelled as the lights came back on and revealed his lifeless body in the shallow water. A few others had noticed that his head had caved in, and red flowed through the pool water. Ray said in a low voice, as far as I know, Stephen's soul is still in that pool. He is rumored to be hiding in the shadows, dragging the last place in each race down with him. Pencil said with a somber voice. If that's true, I countered. Then this Stephen guy had to have been out of his brain to jump in and then, if he did, then this pool would have been shut down for good a long time ago. Dude, it's true. But Stephen appears rarely, Pencil said. He only appears once in a while, and it's been almost a decade since the last time. As I pondered what I had heard, there was a long period of silence. These cretins didn't want to scare me. They were just playing with my nerves and I didn't have to worry about anything since I was an excellent swimmer, far from a last place finisher. All swimmers, please report to the pool. The storm has passed, so the races can resume. Pencil and Michael couldn't stop laughing. I realized that my response to the announcement had demonstrated how tense I had been as a result of their tale. Pencil chuckled as he spoke. You're such a chicken, he said. You were so scared. No, don't worry, man, Ray assured, acting thoughtfully above the rest of the group. Don't worry, we made it all up, he assured me. Of course, I managed to mumble. I would never really believe it. And Pencil assured me too. Sure, it's just a prank to play with you, buddy. There's nothing to worry about, just a bit of playful banter. We walked through the poolside entrance and were soon swimming in the water. Everyone in the audience was back in their seats as with most indoor pools. The noise was filled with the conversations of hundreds of people. Suddenly, everything went dark as we crossed the slick concrete 
and the people around us let out shouts of anguish until the power was restored seconds later. Once more, the speaker filled the audience with the announcement. We have discovered some specialized lighting difficulties, but don't worry, they are being resolved at this point. Raise one participant, be in your lane and get ready to win. As we got closer to the pool, I started to feel a bit shaky. Do I have any reason to believe the urban tale the dummies told me is even true? It was a complete accident that the lights went on and off, much like in the story, but I just assumed it was a coincidence. I made my way over to the group, donned my goggles and jumped onto the starting block. I was in the center lane and surprisingly, there was no one else in this race with me, not even Pencil. Ray and Michael were not to be seen. As the race announcer started counting, I took a look below me. There was water, but the story had already snuck into my head. So, I only got a fleeting glimpse before the power went out again. In the darkness, the race announcer shouted, Go! And the guns, ringing blank, finally went off. Go, kid! The coach said through the darkness. I cried. There's no light. It would be best to stay until I can see. The coach yelled from the darkness. You've got to race. The timekeepers are running. I'm not going to allow you to put off this entire race. You have to go now. The weight of his shove slammed into the center of my back, and I instantly froze in fear of my skull smashing onto the concrete of the pool. Nonetheless, as I hit the water, I had the indescribable relief of seeing that the pool was fully filled. I kicked at the water and began to swim to the top, and that's when I felt an incredible force around my neck, and I was hauled under before I could catch my breath. I realized it was a human arm right away. It felt moist and silky, and it yanked me down with a powerful tug. I fought against the grip and wriggled free from its hold and turned to see Pencil's wide smile, but as I looked further at his face, I saw that the side of his head was partially open exposing parts of his brain. I wriggled and tried to get out of the water, but he insisted on keeping me there. My body began to desire oxygen, and my mind began to raise. When I wriggled, I noticed two more shadows swimming towards me. However, as they got closer, I realized they weren't the lifeguards. I could make out the figures of Ray and Michael as they swam closer. Their skin was worn and stained a dinky, earthy hue and they were radically different from above the water. As I attempted to pry Pencil away from me, red flashes filled my eyes, but before I could move, Ray and Michael swam towards me and slammed me back into the tiled floor. I felt myself blending into the murkiness of the pool as the world above me faded into darkness. Though we were underwater, Pencil put his mouth to my ear and perfectly spoke a single word. Rest. As I drifted into the depths of the pool, it was my final recollection, real or hallucinatory. I was panting and coughing up water when I awoke. Alec, my brother, sat next to me. His clothes were dripping wet. He said, Thank God, I feared that we lost you, Jackson. As soon as my eyes had opened, I noticed that we were near the pool and I realized that Alec had clearly dived in and dragged me out. I subsequently discovered that I had stopped breathing but that I had resumed once Alec began conducting CPR. What were those morons thinking when they made you race with the lights out? 
No one could see you in the water. And I only realized you were in trouble when I heard you yelling and the water splashing afterwards. The, the... I took a moment to calm down and recollect my thoughts. He pushed me in. The coach pushed me in. I feel like punching him in the face right now for the way he treated you. But I'm still perplexed as to how you sank. You are a swimmer, right? Finding you at the bottom of the pool does not bode well for me. Alex stated. The guys I were chatting to in my race grabbed me and took me to the bottom of the pool. I muttered. Ah, Jackson, I think you swallowed too much water. It was a solo race and you were sitting alone for over an hour, scarcely speaking to anyone. Alex remarked, his face shaded by a strange expression. I had no clue what to say in response, and I had no idea what to say when I saw the images from the news story. Obviously, no one was listening to my alarms or believing my supposedly outlandish claims. And after my incident, the pool was closed weeks later and after two months, it was to be demolished. The entire community had gathered to see the pool being demolished. It was quite a sight in town that day. But for me, it was the ruin of the area where I nearly died that attracted me there. And witnessing it crumble was consoling. But as the throng of the crowd dwindled, I stayed fixated on the pool's ruins, and as I peered through the smoke and debris, I believe I saw four tall, slim figures walking away from the rubble and disappearing into the horizon. Today's episode is sponsored by ShipStation. Now, if you've started your own online store, you know how hectic it can be keeping everything orderly while making sure your customers are receiving their shipments on time. That's why I was so thankful when I discovered ShipStation. They relieve me of so much hassle and make operating an online storefront a breeze. ShipStation automates so many important tasks for me and makes sure that they're done right. Now, I spend a lot less time on shipping and a lot more time focusing on growing my business. One of the best parts is that no matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation funnels all your orders into one simple interface that you can manage from anywhere, even on your cell phone. Ship more in less time. Just use my offer code and Mr. Creeps to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in Mr. Creeps. Again, that's ShipStation.com. Enter offer code Mr. Creeps. ShipStation. Make ship happen. My parents made a deal with a demon so they could have a child. Only the first one would belong to them though. Written by No Ladder 91. The little stone figure Mon kept in her bedside table scared me the first time that I saw it. Man-like, but not quite human. It sat holding its knees to its chest and it peeked out from behind them with shy eyes and an evil grin. It seemed to have no neck, until Mom turned it around to show me its backside. Its neck was curled up along its spine like a twisted slinky with a head at the end. Dad stood in the corner watching us, 
and when I made a scared face, he ran a reassuring hand down my back. No, it's okay, son. It won't hurt you. We follow all of its rules. I hated looking at it, but every night, Mom told me to kneel down and whisper the prayer that has burned itself into my imagination. All our blood and bones belong to you. Lucky we who know that you are true. We do the things that others would not do. Mom taught me to say these words on my fifth birthday before I could even read or write. I would sit on my knees in a dark room with my hands cupped and I would stare at its open eyes, which I thought moved sometimes. I used to think that it was just a trick of the light. The worship of Z required a little from us. Whereas friends went to church and read the Bible, we kept the statue in a dark room and prayed once a day. We had nothing else to do for it. That year, mom got pregnant with my little brother, and she had expressed her gratitude one night by sobbing uncontrollably while praying. I had no idea back then, but mom had been what the Bible calls barren, and doctors said that her pregnancies were miracles. Eight months later, she gave birth to Jay at home. Without a nurse, and I said my prayers as usual while she cut off some of Jay's hair and set it down in front of Z's statue. My eyes searched hers for a reason that she would do that, but her eyes avoided mine. While I prayed, I thought that Z's eyes were staring at the tuft of baby hair. Not much changed in our lives except for this addition to our evening prayer. Every night, Mom cut some of Jay's hair and sat down with Dad and me to pray. Jay got older and the ritual went on. My parents loved Jay. Mom often talked about how every day was a gift, and that we should be grateful because a tragedy could happen at any time. Unlike me growing up, Jay got everything new from the store. He began to be a little bit spoiled, but never naughty or uncontrollable. He was always happy, smiling, laughing, and doing crazy boy things like dancing on his chair at dinner. Mom would laugh with tears in her eyes. Dad, who had been strict with me, smiled, but I saw that his eyes were red. They always seemed to be crying when they had every reason to be happy. I assumed this was how parents acted with a second child. The difference between my upbringing and Jay's became apparent in other ways, too. When he had learned to say his first words, I asked Mom if she would teach him about Z. But to my surprise, she glared at me and said, You can never tell him about that. Even when he turns five. Even then, she said and went on folding laundry. After reading Jay to sleep... We all prayed in the room where my parents kept Z's statue behind a locked door. Jay never went inside, no matter how much he asked to. We kneeled down. Mom placed a snippet of Jay's hair before Z. And then we prayed. All our blood and bones belong to you. 
Lucky we who know that you are true. We did the things that others would not do. As we reached the final line, Mom dissolved into tears. Dad, kneeling at my side, reached around me to rub her shoulder. It's alright, he whispered. She shook her head. I'm a terrible mother. I glanced at the statue of Z with my hands still clasped. Its eyes had settled on her, and its grin looked wider than usual. Finally, we finished our prayers. Dad locked the door and I went to bed. Soon Jay began speaking like a healthy boy his age, and I discovered how a wrinkly-faced baby can slowly become full of personality. Why is mom's hair long? asked Jay. Uh, because she's a girl, I said. I had never seen a girl with short hair before. How did it get long? It just grows out and then she cuts it every once in a while. Why doesn't my hair grow out? Because when you go to sleep, mom cuts it for you. Uh, because it hurts when it gets cutted. No, because... I paused. Um, because it's easier. Does she cut your hair when you sleep too? Yes. Does she cut dad's hair? Yeah, she cuts all of her hair. Now stop asking questions. Our parents started planning a huge party for Jay's fifth birthday. All of his parties had been extravagant to the point of excess. And this one was supposed to be even more elaborate. The mom seemed less and less happy as the birthday got closer. She lived on the verge of tears and had to force herself to smile. Dad had red and moist eyes whenever Jay hugged or kissed him. They would spend an hour reading to him every night. I didn't share a bedroom with Jay, but our bathroom was connected. If I left the doors open, I could listen to their voices. One night, Mom told him an unusual story. Don't you need a book? Oh no, this one's all in my head, said Mom. I listened from my desk while I sat drawing. Once upon a time, there was a train driver, and he had a very difficult job. He had to drive the train and keep all the passengers safe. He drove the train for many years and never had any problems. But one day, something terrible happened. I heard Jay ask, Is this a scary story? Yes, it is a little scary, but I think that you should hear it. Okay. Mom went on. The terrible thing that happened was that someone was tied up on the tracks, like in those old western films. Do you know what I'm talking about? Silence, while Jay probably nodded. Well, an innocent townsperson was tied up on the tracks. The train driver would have to pull a lever to change course, and he had enough time to do it. But then he found out there was another problem. The other track had three people tied up on it. Well, couldn't he stop the train? No, the train can't stop in time. It takes too long. He just has enough time to decide if he'll pull the lever or not. And if he pulls it, three people die. Right. Only one person dies if he doesn't pull it. I don't like this story. 
I don't really like it either. Uh, let's do a different one. I know it's scary, Jay, but it's important. I want to know what you would do. Uh, I don't like thinking about it. I feel the same way. Can we read the rabbits' make soup instead? His voice had a slight whine to it. I'll read it after you give me your answer, I promise. In my mind, the right thing to do seemed obvious. Don't pull the trigger and save the three people. But it didn't have the normal feeling of the right thing. It should be right no matter what, but this wasn't. I had never heard a story like that. I think I know what I'd do, whispered Jay, but it still feels wrong. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think most people would agree with you. I agree with you. It feels sad for the boy who needs to die for the other three. Yes, it's still sad for him. Three people live if he dies, though. What about his parents? They'll be devastated, but they'll feel proud to know that the little boy saved the lives of three other people. There was a long silence until Mom said, Sometimes, the right thing to do isn't the right thing for everybody. You just have to pick the rightest one. Jay had trouble sleeping that night, as one might expect. My parents stayed with him until past midnight. When at last he fell asleep, Dad fetched me for the prayers. I needed to stay awake for them. Sorry to keep you up so late, he said, but you know that it's important. Dad unlocked the room and we kneeled down in the light of the candle, saying the words that we always said to the thing with the moving eyes. Mom put Jay's hair down in front of it. That night, she looked resigned as she whispered, All our blood and bones belong to you. Lucky we who know that you are true. We do the things that others would not do. Jay's fifth birthday approached. I began hearing noises downstairs around that time. They came from the locked room and started after mom and dad fell asleep. Something paced back and forth inside. I heard it from the top of the staircase where I stood listening and wondering if I should wake up my parents. Eventually, the noises would stop and I would go to bed. Lying awake, I began to imagine the statue of Z with its clasped knees, searching eyes, and thieving smile. I imagined its long, ribbed neck like a third arm with the head on top, slowly unraveling itself and probing forward, snake-like. I wonder if Mom heard Z or whatever it was moving in the locked room, because she cried harder than usual during our prayers. Mom, we can stop doing this if you don't like it, I whispered. Dad locked the door as Mom and I stood, waiting in the dark. Red numbers from a digital clock on the stove colored the downstairs crimson. Do you know why we do what we do? She asked. I shook my head. It's all for you, she whispered. All of this is for you and only you. But what about Jay? I asked. I felt something hard and painful in my throat. We love Jay, but we don't do this for him, she said. I looked at Dad, confused. 
promise us that whatever happens, you won't tell anybody. Why? He took a deep breath. Because, son, we would make it mad. I glanced over my shoulder at the locked door and felt the hairs all over my body rising. We made a promise long ago, and we need to keep that promise, whispered Dad. What promise? A fourth voice asked. It had come from the staircase. Jay stood near the top, crouching down to see us. What promise? He asked again. Can I know? Go to bed, honey, said Mom in a smiling voice. We're just promising that we'll all go to sleep earlier from now on. Really? asked Jay. Isn't that right, son? asked Dad. I nodded. Let's go back to bed, said Mom, shepherding Jay to his bedroom. The next morning during breakfast, Jay asked again why we had been standing together in the darkness last night. Did you dream that? asked Mom, not looking up from the eggs in the frying pan. No, said Jay. I saw you. I think you just had a strange dream. Mom served us the eggs, still not looking at either of us. I just stared into my plate. Just a dream, Mom said again, starting to wash the pan. The last night that I ever saw my brother, the thing making noises in the locked room came out, and it happened on Jay's fifth birthday. I think we threw the biggest party any boy his age had ever had. It shocked me to see the lengths to which my parents had gone, all the while trying not to cry. Mom had burst into tears in front of all the guests several times. She had just handed Jay a gift when the tears started pouring down her face. Jay stared in confusion, not sure if he should open the gift or not. My aunt asked my mom if she needed anything. They just grow up so fast, you know, Mom said, wiping her face. Jay went to sleep that night in an ecstasy of gift-getting. He was probably the happiest kid alive. I think my parents intended that to be the case from the beginning. It was supposed to make them feel better about what happened next. Mom cried hysterically through our prayers after Jay had fell asleep and went on crying in bed until late. Sometime around 3 o'clock, I heard the thing moving around downstairs in the locked room. I crept out of bed to peek from the top stair and saw the handle of the room jiggling. It popped open, and in the red glow of the clock, I thought that I saw a floating black snake moving slowly through the air and into the kitchen. Except this snake had something like a human's head on the end. I leaped away from the staircase and ran to my room, jumped into bed, but for a long time I heard nothing. All I could hear was my own breathing, and I struggled to keep quiet. The staircase began to groan. It seemed to take hours to reach the second floor. Mom was crying across the hall in her bedroom. Dad had yelled out to me, Stay in your room, son. Do not come out. The thing reached my door and paused. I heard the handle turning but I kept my head under the blankets, shaking and dripping in sweat. 
With my eyes closed, I heard it lurch toward the front of my bed. I felt a gentle pressure on the blankets covering my feet. Something began slithering up the bed, searching in the blanket folds. It sniffed like a wild animal chasing a scent. Something wet and warm even brushed against my thigh. But the entity just kept searching and sniffing, searching and sniffing, all the way to the back of my head beside my ear. And this time I heard and felt the sniffing. Hot breath filled my left ear. Its cheek rubbed against the side of my face. Its nose took a deep whiff of my hair. It seemed to be waiting, unsure of something. And then it slowly pulled away. And I thought of Z's head being dragged backward across my bed by its coiling neck. Finally, I heard it walking out. I stayed under the covers. Gone or not gone, I refused to check either way. But I kept listening. Footsteps in the hallway advanced towards Jay's door and stopped again. He must have been awake because he screamed. Jay slept with his door open and would have seen Z standing in the doorway. First would have had to come Z's head peeking around the corner. It would have hovered into the room, supported by its rope of a nag. The body would have come next, hunched forward, hands reaching out and grasping. Jay cried for mom first. I could hear him through the connecting bathroom, and it went on and on. But nobody came. He tried calling dad and dad didn't come, so he tried calling me. Finally, dad's voice broke through. If we don't give it what it wants, it'll kill us instead. Do you understand? It will kill us. Instead of running to help, I did something unforgivable. I shut the bathroom door connecting our rooms. The screams grew muffled. And I got back into bed, pulled the blankets over me, and shut my eyes. Not long after the scream stopped. At some point, I think that I heard the thing moving back down the hallway and downstairs, closing the door behind it. I stayed awake until morning, clenching my fists, sweating in the hot air below the blanket. My only stuck out my head when I heard birds singing and took a breath of air sunshine on my face. Mom didn't leave her room that day. Dad cooked for me and we ate in silence. I never checked my brother's room. I didn't want to know what happened. After sunset, Mom came downstairs. We needed to pray. We kneeled down in front of the statue with my brother's hair still in front of it and said what we always said. All our blood and bones belong to you. Lucky we who know that you are true. We do the things that others would not do. Coming out of the room, Dad locked the door and Mom put her hands on my shoulders, looking me straight in the eyes. Do you understand now? This was all for you. I said nothing. You can never stop praying, said Dad understand and neither will we and I never have
I'm an intern for the Midwest Anomaly Encrypted Removal Organization. Written by Grimfrost785. Seriously, and I thought working retail was the worst this time of year. I mean, it still is, and honestly, I'll take Jason Dogman in the winterscape of Michigan's UP, then cater to self-righteous middle management who wouldn't know a good idea if it was right in front of them. Unlike middle management, dogmen actually seem to have a sense of purpose to their chaos. Sorry y'all, I'm being self-indulgent. As a special remover in charge Fred would say, and often does to me in particular, freaking Fred. My name, the name you'll know me by at least, is Dutch, last name redacted. You see, we're not exactly an on-the-book sort of organization, nor are we really professionals. Like some other groups out there, even groups that I found written about in the sub, our main goal is to help our fellow Midwesterners out when spooky stuff comes to town, or a cabin in the woods, or a nighttime pontoon party. You get the gist. We're funded by Fred's stupid rich uncle who no one's ever seen. Not even Della. And she's been on the team with Fred since its very inception. Don't get me wrong. I've got my own qualms about the whole shadow benefactor deal. But dang, are we getting paid. It makes being a 29-year-old intern feel much less pathetic. That said, we're not exactly a SEAL team here. I mean, sure, we all supposedly have experience or skills or personalities that make us mesh well enough to stake a couple of ghouls in a Chicagoland graveyard, more firebomb, and particularly violent grassmen in the Cuyahoga. Then yes, we did manage just the other day to seal the portal to purgatory that a few old-school Roman witches kept opening every 17th winter solstice to steal wandering souls. But things have recently been interesting with this team. More interesting than usual. Let me paint a picture of our standard operating procedure via one of our more recent cases. About a week or so ago, we had been called to a rural town in northern Wisconsin nesting itself with its some few thousand residents outside of Chiquamagan National Forest. I went there with Della and Silas, self, another fall remover, and the other interns were scouting another job, and Fred apparently doesn't do forests anymore. Screw you, Fred. So, it was down to us. I wasn't too pumped up about working with Silas without self to rein him in. But interns can't be choosers. Della, on the other hand, her presence calmed my nerves. Whereas Silas was gnarled, explosive, and a trigger happy drinker, not that I could talk, Della's was striking, graceful, and level headed. Anyways, I chatted up some of the locals, putting my charisma to proper use as we talked about the town's recent problems. Laura, the head waitress at the town's local diner, heard pretty much everything from everybody, from the cops to the hunters to the local kids. According to her, 
Fred's uncle only had half the picture when he gave us this mission. We had heard about the disappearances of three local deer hunters on three separate occasions. Nothing about a group of four college kids turning up in pieces, two at their campsite, and the other two half a mile away in opposite directions. And when I say pieces, I'm not speaking in hyperbole. There wasn't even enough of a single one of them to properly ID them at first. When I had hoofed it over to the sheriff's station, one of the deputies told me in hushed tones how she had talked to the forest ranger that had found the campsite. She got me on the phone with him, and apparently this ranger had seen what he described for me as a massive furry, white snake thing with a jaw the size of a car door, munching on the kids before, and I kid you not, diving back into the ground. You ever see that movie with those underground monsters, kid? The ranger asked through the phone. Oh, heck yeah. That flick rocks, man. Uh, Burt Gummer's my dude. Yeah, well, it did that, but in the freaking winter. And it was way too real. After convincing the ranger and deputy that we were the proper authorities to deal with this and to not breathe a word to any of the press milling about it, I said my goodbyes. With a fairly decent picture of what we were dealing with, I reconvened with Della and Silas back at the diner later that evening to formulate a plan. Silas had done a bit of scouting around the area of the college kids' campsite and had felt some strange vibrations underneath his feet. All signs point to a... No, that cannot be... The settlers and native tribes are said to have destroyed them all nearly a century ago. Della thought aloud in her smoky voice as we relayed her findings. What you thinking, Della? Because this doesn't sound like anything that I've ever heard of, I said. Silas gave a raspy grunt to show his agreement. Della pursed her lips and flipped a crop of her fiery hair to the side of her face. A snow wasset. Mustelanopus subtivorix. The last ones are were thought to have been hunted to extinction in the early 1900s, Della replied. And this one sounds twice as large as the ones before. It must have grown abnormally hungry and large, if it's one of the last ones of its kind. Well then, crap. No time like the present, huh? I wasn't all that thrilled to be the bait, but at least Silas had let me his bad-as-heck over-under shotgun filled with his home-brewed shells. And we were about a mile or so away from the previous attack site, staking out a snow-covered bluff overlooking a small clearing that gave my compatriots solid lines of sight to me and hopefully the cryptid. Della and Silas were posted up on the bluff, supposedly ready to jump in, and torch the subterranean creature and save my butt. We didn't have to wait for long. The snow wassail's approach was subtle despite its size and method of travel, and I did my best to not crap my pants and run. Della had stressed when going over the lore with us that the snow wassail was essentially an ambush predator, meaning that it was more inclined to show itself for an attack if it appeared that its prey, yours truly, was unaware. 
It probably would have worked too, if not for Laura the waitress choosing that same morning to do her own investigating into her friends at disappearance. Ah, come on. I cursed as I made a split-second decision born from watching too many Scott Atkins movies. With a quick hand signal to my teammates, I hefted Silas's mean shotgun and ran forward towards the young woman. The snow wassail was nearer to her by around 100 feet, or 30 meters, and I figured by its pace that I wasn't going to reach Laura in time. I just then noticed a large rocky outcropping and a sudden spark of an idea. Laura, Laura, get to those rocks now. Get on those rocks for Pete's sake. I screamed at her with the last of my breath. She turned her head in shock towards me and quickly saw the snow and earth being pushed aside by the speedy and burrowing beast. Even from 50 feet away now, I could see the whites of her eyes go huge as she began to back up in a state of agitated panic. Get on the rocks now, I yelled as I dropped and fired at the first barrel, doing my best to gauge where the wassail's torso would be. The shotgun roared like a heavenly thunderclap as it shot out one of Silas's explosive 10-gauge slugs. A high-pitched shriek sounded out as the shell by some miracle connected with the cryptid's body right as it was moving up from the ground to strike the poor girl. A spray of red showered the snow and trees and girl as the beast faltered for a moment. The snow also recovered quicker than I had thought and kept at its initial prey, though now it was quite noticeably slower and leaving a thick trail of crimson in its wake. For a few horrible seconds, I thought the girl was still doomed, but Laura had come to her senses and took advantage of the creature's lapse to scramble onto the outcropping. My hopes were confirmed when the bloodthirsty cryptid slammed into the roots of the rocks, unable to burrow through, and was now dazed and confused for its efforts. Footsteps sounded behind me as the telltale grunting of Silas told me at least one of my companions was with me. Sure enough, the grizzly man in black soon stood at my side, flamethrower in hand. Is that one of Elon's? I asked. Mm, modified. Oh crap, good enough for me. Mm, glad you approve, came the sarcastic comment. I think he was starting to warm up to me. Silas moved into range, going directly for the creature which had now fully emerged from the ground and slithering its furry form through the snow. Silas put on what I assumed was meant to be a stoic grin, though terrifying grimace would be a better description, and pulled the knot flamethrower's trigger. A massive gorge of fire tore through the air. Seriously, this freaking fireball would put a D&D level 20 wizard main to shame, and into the face of the snow wassail that had launched itself towards them, jaws wide with razor teeth on full, horrible display. There was one problem, however, that my gung-ho companion didn't account for. Momentum. Although quickly and permanently dying to its one primary weakness, the snow wassail was still on a crash course with Silas. Again, I made a split-second decision based on a split-second idea and fired my final shell at the beast, 
connecting with the side of its face midair. Thank God Silas was a pyro. The force of the explosive slug once again flung the creature aside, its flaming body narrowly missing my companion. Silas's modifications must have included something like napalm, because the wassail kept burning down to ash in the melting snow. Even showered in its remains and covered in flamethrower-induced sweat, Silas offered me a nod and, you guessed it, a grunt. But this time, the grunt seemed much more approving than usual. Just then, Della showed and, without a word to us, began to read from some odd-looking leather journal. And as she talked in a language that sounded somewhat familiar, the snow wassels of burning body began to glow and disintegrate. We never said a thing about this in our plan. What the heck is she doing? And where was she during this whole shebang anyways? I whispered to myself as I went to check on the shocked girl. As I began to assure Laura that the thing that had killed her friends was good and gone, and that we weren't government employees that were out to silence any witnesses, I took a glance over at my two companions. Silas was directly behind Della, who was still chanting over the rapidly disappearing snowwassel, and giving her a look that I can only describe as some amalgamation of distrust and fear. I shook it off. More important things needed attention right then. But anyways, we escorted Laura back to the diner, said her goodbyes and condolences, and got the heck out of Dodge. Staying around after removal is rarely recommended. Fred's uncle gave us his usual congratulatory call and some much needed downtime. So yeah guys, that's pretty much what happens here at Macro. There have been a few more interesting developments in the past week or so since that case, and since the incident with the Solstice, that have made me a bit wary about the motivations of certain members of the team. But nah, I'm probably just being paranoid. This gig will do that, I'm told. Remember, if you're in the Midwest and have some spooky stuff going down, shoot your local intern remover Dodge a message. Might just be that we can give you a hand, or save one of yours. I'm a paranormal investigator for the U.S. government. I was given rules to survive the job. Written by Cryptid Echo. Okay, let's get something perfectly clear real quick. Most of you are dumb, like very dumb. How many times do you see these rule stories and think, Oh, hey, if he had just followed the rules, he wouldn't have gotten into trouble. That is us, specifically my agency. Every anonymous event has a reason, an explanation, a method to follow. Some may be easy, Others might really do you bad just for showing up. Giving you some silly rules to follow that will prolong the suffering before pulling you into some extra-dimensional realm to pass a thousand times. So, background, and I'm sure you want to hear it. I can only speak for areas under the jurisdiction of the US, as other countries handle this BS on their own terms. I'm not the CIA, the FBI, or any other three-letter agency, 
The CIA is mostly concerned with overseas espionage and mobbing around third world countries. While the FBI couldn't tell the difference between their own butt and a hole in the ground. My agency doesn't have an acronym. Mostly because our founder was pretty smart and decided that a specific name could be traced and things found out that don't need to be found out. We are an invite-only organization with a few different branches. We recruit from any source we feel will be beneficial to what we do. So it isn't just the normal fare of tier 1 operators and SF kids. While we do utilize them, we also make use of freelancers to take care of specific threats. As for me, I'm human, female. For the purposes of this document, you may refer to me as Echo, which is a throwaway name, just like this account. I've been an investigator for around a decade, and we use sites like this to ascertain the validity of stories, mostly for protection. You see, back in the olden days of the 1700s, our founding fathers started a great nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Obviously, this doesn't include the creatures that we deal with on the regular. We'll call them cryptids, since that's an easy nerd name to focus everything into one group. Cryptids can be just about anything, from classic monsters to buildings infested with rotting biomechanical monsters, or apparitions that drive you mad. Normally, I wouldn't bother to do this, but since the quarantine, things have changed. People aren't distracted by their daily lives as much as they used to be, and we can only stage scandals and divisions so much before. The majority of the population begins to grow numb to everything normal going on in the world. That, and I'm honestly tired of seeing these same mistakes. Take the jobs with rules, for example. It starts off with some rube just out of college with a worthless degree, who is now struggling to make any money because art doesn't exactly pay the bills unless you're the new Pablo Picasso. Soon they get desperate, and they start applying to anything they can get their hands on that remotely looks like it will secure their next meal. One day, aha, a job posting pops up. Not on actual vetted job sites like Indeed, but something stupid like Craigslist or Facebook. Are you magically run across a paper flyer that you never noticed before? That happens to be sitting eye level with you while you sip on a non-fat soy latte that you just bought with the remaining five bucks in your checking account. Security guard needed. Start tonight, $40 an hour, no experience needed. If there aren't any red flags in that quoted line right there, you need to go get your head checked or lay off the lattes. No security firm pays 40 bones an hour for a Randall off the street with no experience. And I'd be willing to bet my ridiculous government paycheck on it. This also goes for amusement parks, malls, universities, subway systems, the works. You see, I've investigated so many of these facilities over the last 10 years that it feels like the general population should have gotten a hold of things by now. If they had, my agency could go public and you could call us on the phone like a normal person and we would come out and take care of it. 
instead of us stumbling onto this crap on Reddit after bodies have started piling up. No, you have to take the hard way, and that's fine. Here are a list of rules to follow for you to not get caught up in crap like this. This isn't all inclusive either, so no one should be all up in my DMs going, but Echo, what about if we're in the middle of the wilderness in West Virginia, and we're hearing things? Well, first off, I hope that you brought friends. That way, whatever is trying to hunt you will hopefully pick off your bros one by one while you try to find a way out. There is something that you people need to realize really quick. A forest in the US isn't any less ancient than the forest that you find in Europe or Asia. Things have been out there since before the Native Americans were throwing spears at it, and it will be here after we are long gone. Anyway, on to the rules. Rules for surviving the job. 1. If a job posting seems too good to be true, then it probably is. 2. If you can't easily do a web search of the company, it's probably a shell. 3. If it advertises high pay for low skill, it isn't worth it. 4. You aren't equipped to fight whatever you're going to find. 5. The people who hired you know that you're stupid and they will not help you. 6. If you find yourself in this situation, follow the rules to the letter. And 7. If you live and make it out, DM me and never go back there. Rules for surviving the wilderness 1. Don't go into the wilderness. 2. If you do go into the wilderness, take someone with you. Preferably multiple people. 3. Don't go more than 2 miles from a main road. Most roads used to be native footpaths who figured out the best way to travel through that area. 4. Research the lore. Most of it is grounded in some measure of truth. 5. Don't go during hot times, Halloween, solstice, the harvest, etc. 6. If a tree starts bleeding, leave the area. Once safe, mark the coordinates and DM me. 7. Most state and national parks are there as a safeguard against a cryptid that we can't dispose of. Follow the rules of the park. 8. If it feels like a gate to hell, it probably is. Don't go through it. I'll add more to these later, but those are the basics for now. Your gut instinct is something that modern society has been trying to dull for a while. That animalistic urgency isn't something to be ignored. If your body and mind are telling you that something is whack, then get out of there. I'm really tired of going to a site just to see the remains of humans sprawled everywhere. After they had passed 10 blood totems, a marsh where animals drown for eternity, demonic looking gates and signs that pretty much say, you're gonna die a horrible death if you keep going fam. Common sense is your friend. And now that my little tidbit has been said, I have an investigation to get to. We always have a hidden camera with us, so when I get back, I'll transcribe it here. Yes, my boss is fine with this. He's tired of it too. Agent Echo and Agent Shout arrive on site at 1630, the 22nd of January 20XX. 
redacted as South Dakota. Echo shout, where did this come from? My partner queried. Just go along with it, you goober. Think of it as a training video for morons. Brain is cool with it. I spat back, contrasting my short platinum hair and equally short stature. Shout wasn't even six feet, with well-combed red hair. He wasn't built like a brick house, as in our profession, it paid more to be able to run than anything else. Hey, most of the time you just can't outmuscle cryptids, so you have to outthink and outsmart them. Brain. His voice rose into pitch as he sounded the word out. Brain was my code name for the boss, a fact which he had just now become privy to. You should be shout, honestly, you do that a lot. Ignoring how true his words were, as I tend to get overly excited in certain situations, I put the truck into gear and drove into the mostly empty parking lot of the museum. I hate museums. People want to collect old stuff and are surprised when it comes with, sometimes deadly strings attached. We looked up at the two-story building in front of us. It was an old house, one of those Victorian types with the creepy atmosphere, and some local thought it would be a cool museum to renovate. The architecture was pretty neat actually. Atop the entrance sat a hand-painted sign that spoke the name of the museum. Mostly displaying things like antebellum antiquities and strange objects from around the state. A job posting had been popping up on Facebook for a while. It would be filled and then about a week later it would be up again. So far, three security guards had been reported missing or in an accident of some kind. So we called Wind and decided to check it out. The town was mildly populated. A couple of thousand people at most, and it was as cold as balls outside. To better blend in with the locals, Shout and I moved into a piece of crap apartment in town and bought a raspy old Dodge truck to showcase how poor we were. Thankfully, they were happy to sign on two new security guards for the night shift at a ridiculous rate of 43.50 an hour. You remember my rules from earlier? Classic. And we pulled into the parking lot and shut the truck off. From the back of the extended cab, Shout pulled a small case up and into his lab, thumbed the latches and flipped it open. A small laptop sat in the case. Attached via USB was the device, an instrument for measuring levels of redacted. The readout was going ballistic, indicating that cryptids were definitely happening in the area. He shut the laptop and closed the case just as we had a visitor. An old lady somewhere between 95 and 110 years old walked out to greet us, dirty gray and white hair flapping in the freezing wind. She maybe topped five feet in height, and her face was beaten and weathered, with scars dotting her mottled flesh. You two were supposed to be here 30 minutes ago. Get inside. She spat, and then turned to walk inside without waiting, muttering something like, Freaking kids having no respect, or some other crap like that. Oh, she's a pleasant one. Shout mused as he stepped out. I just followed him and we went inside together. 
The interior was hot, like ridiculously hot. That type of heat when you take a trip down south in the summer, and it's 120% humidity and makes you feel sticky. The entryway looked pretty normal. Across the threshold, one could see a decent part of the museum just from there. Cabinets were arranged in a pattern that formed a route, where you start at one end and end up in a gift shop full of cheaply made overpriced crab. We bypassed the starting line and went straight to the gift shop, where the old bag was pouring coffee into cups that looked like they hadn't seen a sink or a dishwasher ever. Hopefully it'll last longer than the others. Now that the wind wasn't covering it, her voice was painful to hear, a rasp deeper than Shout's voice ever could be, with the unmistakable sound of smoke damage mixed in. She reeked of cigarettes and alcohol. What happened to the others? Shout asked, leaning on the glass case atop the old woman's desk. She promptly shoved his arm off of it. Oh, this place is filled with things. Things that do things to people and make them do things. Things that people don't normally do. Can you handle it? What? My obvious shock was noted by the woman. Oh, you don't believe me, you little crab. Stay a night here and see how you do. If you live, I'll double your pay. The heck did you just say to me, old lady? My face grew hot. My temper flared and I started over. Shout grabbed me and held me back while the old woman sat there, laughing on one of those sandpaper on metal laughs only lifelong smokers could do. You got fire and good, you'll need it. The museum closes at five, make sure you lock up and read the rule book. I'm going home. Fine, get the heck out then. I spat, eager to be done with her. She laughed a little more and grabbed her things. She set a binder on top of the desk without a label on it and patted it, staring right into Shout's eyes. You could come with me, kiddo. We'll take a dip in my hot tub together. The amount of sultry she tried to put into her voice was painful to hear. Uh, we will, uh, I can't, you gotta know, get to the job and stuff, right? The woman laughed again and laughed straight away. I broke out into fits of uncontrollable laughter while Shao began dry heaving into the half-full trash can to the side of the desk. He was popular with the ladies, especially the older ones. Unlucky for them, he wasn't interested in them at all, so no one had a chance. Alright, let's get to these rules. Hope this isn't complicated. I really don't want to deal with this crap tonight. Shout busied himself while looking over pictures on the desk. Huh, check this out. I peeked over. A row of photos sat against the back wall. They went from old to new and each one of them had multiple people in it. One thing stuck out. There was one person who was in all of the pictures. Young, not terribly pretty but enough to attract attention. A life stealer, he asked. Probably. It explains why the guards went missing and why she needs someone pretty quick. Okay, you should know the drill by now, dude. How much time do we have? Fifteen minutes, give or take. He responded as I opened the manual, checking inside for a slip of paper. Oh, here we go. 
Usually, jobs like this don't publish their own rules because that would indicate knowledge of the paranormal happenings. Usually, they jot them down on notebook paper and cram it somewhere obvious so they don't lose too many too soon. Rules for the Redacted Museum Failure to follow these rules may result in injury or death. 1. Your shift starts exactly at 5pm. Be in the museum before then. If you drive up to the museum after this time, turn around and go home. Do not be outside of the museum grounds after this time. 2. 5pm to 5.30. Use this time to lock things up. Every door, every window must be closed and locked securely. Do not go into the attic except during the times outlined in these rules. 3. 5.30 to 5.31 The attic houses and old wedding dress. Once 5.30 hits, the door to the case will open and will remain open for one minute. Before it closes, you must walk up the stairs and knock on the door. The door to the attic will open for you. Walk inside, face the dress, and curtsy. Say, Good evening, ma'am. We'll take care of you tonight. Close the door for the dress. If you reach the attic and the door in the case is closed, you can try to run if you want. 4. After this, walk around the museum from the start of the exhibits to the end. Read everything, as if you were a tourist. The exhibits like when they are paid attention. 5. During your tour, you may encounter screams and crying. You may see things in your peripheral. Do not attempt to look for the source of the screams or at anything in your peripheral vision. 6. The exhibits may change, displaying truly frightening scenes that may involve family members. Do not enter the exhibits unless you want to become a part of it. 7. Near the end of the tour before you exit to the gift shop, you must turn and bow and say, Thank you for the lovely time. It doesn't matter what you see, you must still thank the exhibits. 8. When you exit to the gift shop, you will see a grotesque young man sitting at the desk. Buy something. It doesn't matter what it is and accept the receipt. Your purchase will be refunded to you in the morning. Do not look at the receipt. 9. After the tour, you must complete a walkthrough of the museum every hour. You may hear knocking at the door or the windows. Do not open or look out at them. 10. Do not answer the phone. Well, that's pretty mundane. I mused, looking over to shout. He checked his watch and looked back up. Time to say hey to the dress. You got the stuff? I patted a small bag that I passed off as a purse, and we walked upstairs to the attic. I knocked on the door and we waited for a half a second and then it opened, showing a lovely white wedding dress in an open case. It was very old, maybe the turn of the 19th century, frilly and tiny. This was most likely the course of the power the lady had. Used in tandem with some kind of old magic or curse to steal the life force of others and prolong her life. We followed the rule that made a curtsy, 
telling the dress that we would take care of it tonight and shout to close the case. Downstairs, we began our tour of the museum like a tourist would. The exhibits actually weren't too numerous, but the rules hadn't in line when it said they might show us some messed up stuff. Really bad stuff that I don't want to repeat, and it ran the gamut. Shot was still relatively new to this whole thing, so I pulled an air sickness bag from my purse and handed it to him right before he chucked his guts up. I've seen plenty of stuff like what we saw, and I'm kind of jaded now, which really is the sad part. We continued through the museum at a leisurely pace, stopping to look at each grotesque scene shown to us. At the end, we turned and thanked the exhibits for a good time. The creatures that had been at our peripheral were suddenly in front of us, watching, growling with mouths in places that they shouldn't be, making sounds that shouldn't be heard by mortals. Shout was pale and I went tense. Eldritch abominations were the worst to me, and this museum was full of them. I couldn't wait to be free of this place. They were there waiting for us to mess up. One infraction would be our demise. We turned and exited the gift shop, picked out two candies and paid for them individually, keeping the receipts. The lights dimmed and the grotesque kid disappeared. Hey, Echo, what causes the stuff to appear here? Shout spoke while I was busy rummaging through books to find these secret diaries that these people inevitably kept. I was halfway inside of a deep bookshelf when he asked. Um, think of the world as, um, a flat plane. Flat Earth theory except interdimensional instead of real space. Humans can't really perceive it too much since our telepathic ability is almost nil. But that is also what kind of protects us. Creatures from different planes feed on energy created from mental stimulation. Like psychic food and to powerful enough sources like blood in the water. Emotions serve as a conduit. That's why a lot of possessed objects were the possessions of someone whose emotion was so strong it created a beacon for something. Demons are the most common because they can possess smaller objects easier, kind of like that dress. They can feed and regulate themselves to do what they want to do. Eldritch creatures are in turn drawn by a demon, who has a bigger presence on the psychic plane than any human ever could. I tossed more books off the shelf. So, the things we saw in the museum weren't demons. I thought all of these were. Didn't you pay attention in redacted cores? Eldritch, not real understandable by us, but there are some explanations. Eldritch creatures can only affect our world during times when... The barrier is weaker, such as nighttime, or during certain psychic extraplanar phases. Phases, like boss fight phases. He arched a brow, taking the diaries that I handed him and placing them on the desk. No, you doof. Kind of like phases of the moon. Our world's psychic manifestation goes through phases as well. These correspond to certain times of the year such as Halloween, Midsummer, etc. That's why you hear of most eldritch activity taking place more at certain times of the year.
Demons don't have to worry as much about the barrier, but they still have limitations. Houses like this are dangerous because eventually, so many beings will congregate that it'll weaken the barrier enough for them to get in. Well, good thing we're here. I'd rather sit in the hot tub with the old bath than have to deal with that kind of infestation. Yeah, me too, I replied. The phone began ringing, startling me and making me slam my head against the shelf. I shimmied free of the bookcase and rubbed my head. Neither shout nor I attempted to answer the phone. Rule number 10. I'm going to start reading these. It's time for a museum walk. You take the honors and I'll switch next time. See you in a few, Echo. Shout, be careful. Symptoms are classic, but treat everything like it's your first time. He nodded and walked off leaving me to manually transcribe certain passages into my notebook. Taking pictures would be easier, but if you run the risk of transferring the possession if you photocopy the whole book. Shaw returned a while later, and we switched off like this for most of the night. All in all, it was relatively pain-free. Not a bad one to introduce Shaw to a rule-based anomalous facility. 7am came quickly enough, and the old bat seemed astonished that we were still alive. No issues, she quirked a brow. Nah, none at all, I responded. See you back tonight, Shout answered. Yes ma'am, we will. Rules were simple, museum wasn't too bad. We'll see you tonight. And we walked out, got in the truck and laughed. Well, we left, but parked around the corner to see where we could scope the place out with binoculars. Leaving the truck after we saw the woman peer out the door and look around, we quietly made our way back to the museum entrance and looked in. The woman was frantic, going through the diaries that I had left in the desk for her to find. She frantically made her way upstairs as quickly as her stubby old legs would allow. Shout made quick work of picking the lock, and we walked after her. From my jacket pocket, I pulled free a 6R 9mm, already loaded and safety off. We approached the attic door, just as the woman opened the case and gently took the dress out of it, cradling it like a child. Oh, my sweet thing, I'm so glad they didn't hurt you. They know, they know, they saw everything. I don't know how, but... No, no, they'll be back and then we'll take care of us, I interrupted her. I raised my pistol as she turned around. Her mouth opened to speak and I put a bullet right in her. She crumpled to the floor and Shao began dousing lighter fluid on the dress and floor and then lit it all up with a breeze-proof lighter. Matches could be blown out easily. As the dress caught on fire... Unearthly screams that filled the house. Shout and I bolted, running down the stairs and shouldering our way out of the door and into the morning light outside. He caught his breath as I stood, taking his lighter and lighting a cigarette, a habit picked up years ago after my first job. We walked back to the truck and got in. Agent Echo and Agent Shout, stage one complete. Final sweep of site with redacted device will commence after site has been cleared by first responders. 
Incendiary operations will resume if first responding services are better than adequate and other redacted are detected. End of transcription. Well, there you have it folks. A pretty easy one to deal with. Any specific questions, direct them to the comments preferably. And if one of you DMs me any questionable images of your body parts, just know that my agency has more funding than the CIA, the NSA, and FBI combined. And P.S. Tell the FBI I said to suck it. I discovered something deep in the Canadian wilderness. Written by Varanus Priscus. For as long as I can remember, I've had a fascination with nature and the unexplored wilderness. I remember meandering through the woods outside my house when I was a kid, collecting plants and fungi for personal collections. I would sometimes wander through shallow ponds, catching frogs, toads, and newts armed with a small net, the same net being used for catching bugs as well. As time would pass, I'd eventually move on to greater wilderness, geared with hiking, camping, and photography equipment for the wildlife that I sought to capture shots of. I am today a biologist and environmentalist, with my wildlife expertise being mainly in mammals, specifically bears and large carnivores. The job I remember having the most fun with was the Canadian Wildlife Service, or the CWS for short, where I was tasked with tracking and observing grizzly bears in order to assess the challenges and threats that they face. You see, permanent removal of a suitable habitat by human activity within grizzly distribution remains one of the principal threats to the bears. And because individual grizzlies need large home ranges, Large-scale industrial projects, increased future resource development, and establishment of transportation corridors could potentially pose a significant threat to the removal of a larger portion of effective habitat, in turn, significantly limiting their range. Climate change also posed a threat with mountain pine beetle populations propagating as a result, and destroying forests of whitebark pine these trees being an essential food source for grizzlies. One day, the service put in charge of a localized project for grizzlies in a heavily remote part of the Albertan part of the Rocky Mountains. The Rockies of Alberta are known for being a vast, largely inaccessible stretch of wilderness, with many parts only reachable by air. This has made it a refuge for a plethora of wildlife many of whose population trends in the area are still, as of now, unknown. The expedition would last about two weeks, and would consist of tracking individual bears, as well as measuring anthropogenic effects, and to a lesser extent, the effects of climate change on the area. Without further delay, I had prepared my gear and left to help with the project, I had flown over from operations in Calgary to the location of the base via helicopter, where from there on out, we would continue throughout the mountains on foot, setting up camp at different locations. We were expected to return to the base at the end of the expedition, 
where we would then be airlifted back to civilization. Upon arrival at the base, the site was just a small opening on a mountainside, surrounded by nothing but what seemed like endless coniferous forest. Nestled here was a small log cabin where my colleague Sean, a veterinarian, who had arrived here about a few days earlier, had set up operations. After I left the helicopter, I went on over to the base cabin to check in. When I entered, Sean was there as testing out the radio tech used to track the bears. He seemed very focused on the task at hand, that it took him a few seconds to even notice my presence. Oh, you're here. Perfect timing, too. He seemed rather ecstatic upon meeting me. Yeah, quite the hassle getting here. I had replied. Curious about the tracking equipment, I asked. You collared one already. Yeah, I sure did. Darted and fitted a large sew about two days ago. I'm not entirely sure, but she might be pregnant. Hearing this, it did make sense. As around this time of year, female grizzlies would be gestating after mating in the late spring or early summer, preparing to hibernate for the coming wintertime. You have to take me to her. I should be able to confirm her pregnancy. Well, now that you're here, we can get moving. Immediately, we readied our gear and set out with an antenna and receiver to find the cell. We hiked for several hours, following the direction the antenna led us in, as well as signs in the area which would indicate a bear passing through. Despite our efforts, however, we found little to nothing, not even a sound from the receiver. As it started to get dark, we settled down in a small clearing to set up camp for the night. It seemed quite odd that despite a bear being tracked, there was little evidence, if at all, of any bear being in the area. Something about this was all bizarrely off. The next morning, we awoke to the sound of the receiver producing a tone. As soon as we had heard this, it had to mean that the bear that we were looking for was nearby. We rushed to pack up and to head out in the direction of the signal. As we headed out, the tone from the receiver became louder. I knew the sooner our bear was in sight, we had to proceed with the utmost caution. After being darted, the bear could become incredibly agitated and charge, so I would have to take a shot from a safe distance. However, as we treaded through, we reached what seemed like a cave opening at the foot of the mountain. It was here I knew that any further advent was far too risky, as entering a den with a bear inside was straight up asking for it. Sean turned to look at me and asked, Now what? I don't think she's coming out. Considering that this time of year, bears would be preparing for hibernation, that was most certainly a possibility. We'll camp out a ways from here. Might have to change up the mission if she doesn't leave by tomorrow. Reluctantly, we set off about half a mile north of the den and set up camp for the night. Come the following morning, we woke up, packed up camp, and headed on back to the den site. However, when we got there, something was wrong. The receiver wasn't creating the tone anymore. Not even faintly. While this might have meant that the bear had left the den... There were no tracks shown to be leaving the den. Everything was as we had left it. 
Another possibility was that there was a malfunction with the radio collar, and that due to an unknown cause, it had stopped transmitting signals to the receiver. We gotta go in. I was set into a state of surprise and fear when hearing Sean suggest this. I told him, Are you insane? We could get ripped to shreds entering that den. Well, I don't see any other way we're going to recover that collar. As life-threatening as this idea was, I came to the realization that no other option was available. Okay, fine. I hesitantly agreed. But the moment that I hear anything, we get out of there immediately. We entered as slowly and as cautiously as we could, neither of us making so much as a whisper. Inside, however, the den was not just a den, but seemed to be a small network of caverns. This made me even more fearful, knowing that the bear could charge and maul one of us at any moment, if still inside. As we proceeded, I noticed a metallic glint. I walked over to it to see that it was the radio collar off the bear's neck. How this happened, I honestly had no idea with my best guess being some weird error with the collar itself. I picked it up, and when I turned around, Sean was nowhere to be seen. I wanted to call out to him, but I didn't want to make any loud noise in case the bear was still inside the cavern with us. As frightened as I was, I cautiously proceeded to look for him, my heart beginning to pound. As I traversed through, I saw a faint light, the exit to the den. I rushed towards it, hoping to find Sean outside. When I exited the cave, the surroundings around me were different. Back when we had arrived, it was a heavily forested area, but what I was looking at now was more of an open mixture of forest and parkland. What the heck had happened? Some of the gear that we had left outside was missing as well. There wasn't even a trace of it. And the oddest of all, it was nighttime. The only explanation that I could think of at the moment was that the caverns we had entered led to various openings, and that I had simply gotten lost and ended up in a different exit from where we had entered at first. But there was no possible way that we were in the caverns for that long. And despite trying to rationalize this, I decided that locating Sean was a more important priority. I headed back in what I believed was the direction of camp, believing that he had somehow returned there, with the brightness of the night sky being the only thing allowing me to navigate my way through. Before, we had quite a bit of trouble moving through the dense woods, carrying out equipment and all, but now, the trees seemed much sparser almost as if I was in the tundra of the Yukon. I just plowed on through, trying to make sense of what was happening, yet to no avail did I find any side of our last campsite. None of this made sense. The surroundings, the time of day, I had no idea what the heck was going on. As I was trying to desperately make sense of my situation, in the distance I caught a glimpse of several ominous figures moving around. I wasn't able to make out what they were at first, but when I approached to get a better look, I recognized it as a small herd of caribou. My first thoughts were that this was good news, 
seeing as woodland caribou are a threatened species, and the fact that this area is home to a healthy, previously unknown population could aid in these species' conservation efforts. But yet at the same time, something seemed a bit off about them. Woodland caribou are characterized by a darker tone of fur as well as thicker and somewhat pronounced antlers. These, however, sported a silvery coat as well as a more curved antler shape, reminiscent of the barren ground subspecies found farther north. Could these have been some sort of weird morph or perhaps a hybrid subspecies? I ultimately decided to move on and continue searching for Sean, in spite of things continuing to make no sense. I continued wandering through the brush aimlessly, Still, no success of finding any sign of Sean anywhere, and at this point I was tired. As soon as I had got to the nearest outcropping, I sat down to catch my breath for a brief minute. I took this time to look up at the night sky. The view was admittedly beautiful. While it's easy to see, view the stars better in places far from civilization, as I've had the privilege from time to time before. Here was unlike anything that I had ever seen before. I had never seen the sky at this time in such vivid detail. I simply sat for a good ten minutes, mesmerized by the sight of it all. My attention shifted upon hearing a faint, slow rumble. The best way that I could describe it was a soft drumming noise that I could just barely hear, but I could somehow feel it, as if it was sending some sort of vibration through the ground. Curiosity once more took hold of me, and I headed out towards the source of the noise. It was some sort of animal creating these sounds. The largest animals in the region are wood bison, which do make deep grunts and low rumblings, although this sounded much more rhythmic. Wanting to find out, I continued in the direction the noise was emanating from. It started to increase in volume as I got closer to the point where it started to sound more familiar, like I've heard this exact sound somewhere before. I finally reached the source of the noise, at a lakeside and what I saw, I still have no rational explanation of what, or more so how I saw what I had seen. At the shore, there were several large animals, elephantine in appearance, long hair and curved tusks, there was no mistake. I was laying eyes on a herd of living, breathing, woolly mammoths. How though? How was an animal supposedly extinct for 10,000 years right here in front of me? None of this could possibly be real. I had to be imagining or hallucinating, but there is no possible way that any of this was a real scenario. I took a good five minutes to get myself together before coming to terms with the fact that all of this was most certainly real, and right before my own eyes. I knew the sounds were familiar, as I had heard a similar bellowing before many times from captive elephants. While I still had to take care of the situation that it was in, I couldn't help but take some time to just look. I decided to sit and watch the mammoths go about their business. The structure of the herd seemed identical to modern elephants, the adults being all female with two calves present, likely not even a year old. They appeared to be feeding on low brows, lichens, and shrubs, 
probably why they've come to the lakeside. The ground beneath them was littered with fecal matter, the smell being quite strong even from where I was sitting. While I didn't want to get too close, I wanted to get a better look. So slowly, I walked down to the shoreline. Once I was closer, my view was much better. I had noticed one of the calves running around in the shallow water, splashing and rolling around as well. I had no doubt that this was a play behavior reminiscent of African and Asian elephant calves. Soon after, it trotted ashore, shaking itself like a dog. My attentions then turned to one of the herd's adult females, who apparently was looking right at me. To ensure my safety, I stood my ground as it watched me for a good solid minute. Soon after, it turned back towards the herd, losing interest in me. It was in this moment right here that my childhood sense of wonder was overtaking me. I was right here, laying eyes on animals nobody has had the chance to see for several millennia, not even questioning how, simply relishing the fact that it's happening. Then, right out of nowhere, a distant, a deep, echoing howl broke through. The sound caught the attention of the herd, who with haste immediately started to depart the area, bolting out into the brush without looking back. As somebody who's worked with large carnivores, I've heard the howls of many wolves a time before, and have tracked several packs in my day. However, that sound, it was like no wolf I had ever heard. Whatever it could have been was apparently dangerous enough to scare the mammoths away. I decided that I shouldn't stick around, and proceeded to return to my search for Sean. I headed out into the brush, once more looking for any signs. I was still very hesitant to call out, not wanting to draw the attention of whatever creature had made those howls. But then something off caught my attention, within a small grove of trees. As I headed over to inspect it, my eyes lit up in shock. It was the gear and supplies that Sean was carrying around with him, but all torn up, as if something had grabbed it and ripped it to shreds. The antenna used to pick up the radio signals from before was there and was totaled. On the ground next to the wreckage were large footprints, seemingly canine in appearance, but larger than any wolf track I've ever seen. And that's when I heard it again, this time the sound much closer, and it was accompanied by faint snarls, hinting at more than one animal. My heart started pounding as I bolted back into the woods in the direction of the cave. Not sure if Sean was even alive or not, but just concerned with getting out of here alive. As I was running, the foliage around me started to rustle. I froze up in fear hoping whatever it was would run the other way. And then something jumped out. It was Sean, all cut up and covered in scars with his clothes torn up. What the heck? What happened to you? Run! Just run now! Not far behind him, I could hear faint howls and snarling. The two of us bolted out of there, not looking back and just headed for the caves as quickly as we could. We finally got to the entrance of the caves, but then, that's when we saw them. Two large, dog-like animals jumped in front of us, gnashing at us a deep roar like bark. This stopped us dead in our tracks, 
both of us frozen in utter terror. These things resembled some unholy conjoining of wolf and hyena. I've worked with plenty of large predators in my day, but these, I didn't know what the heck these were. The larger individual had its sights locked onto us, with each second inch toward us closer, readying itself to pounds. As it slowly backed us away, two more appeared from behind us, baring their teeth at us to drive us toward the jaws of the other two, cutting off any route of escape. Now there is no exit, as all four of them closing in on us, and they prepared for the kill. And then Sean looked at me. You gotta get out of here while you still can. Without saying anything, he made a break for it. No, wait, don't. My words did nothing to stop him, and without hesitation, the creatures darted after him. Within seconds, all four were on top of him, violently ripping him to pieces. All I could hear were his muffled screams against the frenzied snarls and hisses. I knew at this point there was nothing that I could do. I made a run for the cave. When I entered, I desperately scurried through the caverns. It didn't matter if there was any bear in here or not. I just wanted to live. I could barely see a thing in all the darkness, but none of that mattered. I just kept rushing on through. Finally, I saw a faint light and without hesitation, I ran to it. When I got out, I was back where me and Sean had entered and through. The gear that we had left outside was still there and it was daytime. It was just day, as if absolutely nothing had changed. What the heck just happened? I was still shaken up by what I had just witnessed. The image of Sean getting torn to pieces by those things was still fresh in my mind. Without any delay, I ran back to through the woods to the base as quickly as I could. It took me at least three hours before I finally got back to base. And when I did, I proceeded to go and radio CWS. I had reported a state of emergency as my colleague Sean was missing and that I was unable to locate him. I felt that if I tried to explain everything that I had witnessed, they would think that I was delusional. The next day, a helicopter was sent to pick me up and return me to Calgary. Alberton authorities were unable to recover Sean's body, and his death was listed as a potential bear mauling. Soon after, I stepped down from my position at CWS. To this day, I can still hear the echoes of Sean's scream as whatever the heck those things were torn to shreds. I still have not been able to make out to rationally explain what all of that was. That place that I had come across. How was it there? How was any of that even possible? My whole life I had dreamed of discovering that which has not been found. But after all I had been through, it made me come to realize... Perhaps some things are better left alone. I received some insider information regarding 2022. It's going to be terrifying. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. I had plans for the new year. I was going to change myself. Become a better, healthier, smarter, and stronger me. Sure, it's what everyone tells themselves. Making and abandoning New Year's resolutions is practically a facet of Western culture these days. 
but I was serious, confident that I would be able to stick to it. To push past the late January burnout, to outlast the 30-day trial gym membership, to finish whatever book I happened to start, that was until I was shown how utterly awful, disastrous, and quite possibly cataclysmic 2022 would be. Now, I don't want 2021 to end. I don't want to see the first sunrise of the new nightmarish year. I had been hanging out at my friend's house, making plans for the new year when he suggested that I talk to a friend of a friend, some guy who his friend had bought some workout equipment from a few weeks back. At the beginning of December, I had told my friend about my physical fitness goals for the new year, and he said that it would be a good idea to have some equipment at home for days when I couldn't go to the gym, but still wanted to work out a little. I thanked him for the recommendation since I hadn't even thought of that, but knew that home equipment at retail stores was quite expensive. He put me into contact with the guy and I picked out some rubber-coated hex dumbbells, some resistant ropes and some kettlebells. Cost me around 200 bucks, which I was perfectly fine with. I'd compared the prices online with stores around me, and the savings were undeniable. The guy was nice, and he even threw in some unopened pre-workout supplements that he had had lying around for a while, as well as some protein mixes for after-workouts. He advised me to ease into the former, and suggested that I start with half scoops, until I grew accustomed to the high caffeine content, the beta-alanine, and the cocktails of pump and performance blinds. I told him that I would, and I left with my fitness bundle, excited to start refining myself. But here's the thing, I drink a lot of coffee. I usually have around 2-3 to three cups in the morning, and enjoy around the same amount at night. The pre-workout supplements that he gave me, two different formulas, contained 150mg of caffeine, and 370 milligrams. The average cup of coffee was around 75 to 90 milligrams, so I figured I would be fine taking a full scoop, if not even more. I didn't want to ease into 2022. I wanted to explode into it, and unsurprisingly, explosion was included in the labeling on one of the mixes. This is where the trouble began. My first day at the gym, Christmas Eve, went well. I felt extremely energized by the pre-workout, invigorated and stimulated in a way I had never felt before. Neither my nerves nor my heart felt overtaxed by the caffeine and the other stimulants, and I managed to exceed my initial expectations by quite a bit. The only downside of the experience was a bit of digestive drama immediately following ingestion of the pre-workout but it was quickly overcome and didn't hamper the workout, which I started about 20 minutes after my stomach had settled. After the workout, I went home, added a scoop of the post-workout protein mix, around 40 grams of protein, to some water in the shaker that I had bought from the gym supply stand, and sat down on the couch to relax. I was feeling spent, but in a nice way, could actually feel that good kind of soreness creeping into my limbs. Now, at the mention of privately dealt workout supplements, 
You might have drawn the conclusion that they were going to be involved in some way in my aforementioned doomsday revelation. That maybe they eventually caused some apocalyptic hallucination, in addition to the good palms. But that's not the case. They had no direct relation to the grimly revelatory event. They were not the cause of it. Later that night, while eating breakfast for dinner and sipping on my second helping of protein, I heard a sound outside, through the screen door of my apartment. Now, hearing a strange sound in an apartment complex isn't anything unusual. With dozens to hundreds of people boxed into a building, it'd be weird if you didn't hear an odd sound or two every few hours. But the thing about this sound was that there were actually two variations of it. Two slightly out-of-sync modulations that had played with near simultaneity. Like if one of your Bluetooth earphones momentarily lapsed after telling you for the fifth time that the battery was low. The sound itself hadn't been that odd, initially. It was a short-lived sort of blip-blip, which I thought could have come from anything. But the out-of-syncness piqued my interest for whatever reason, and I got up from my sad little dining table to investigate. Standing at my screen door, which had no curtain or blinds, I looked out into the night, for some reason expecting to see some visual indication of the sound source. Immediately beneath the simple concrete balcony is my building's parking lot, and the only sign of life or activity in the moment was right there, an old woman removing some items from her trunk. But her car, as far as I could tell, was off, and there wasn't anything visible on the person that could have made any kind of distinctly electronic and extremely audible sound. Seeing me staring at her, she meekly waved, and I responded with what was probably an overly enthusiastic wave back. I didn't want to seem creepy, despite the circumstances. Upon gathering her things, she quickly shuffled away, and just when she had gone out of sight, I heard the sound again, and this time it sounded as if it had come from immediately above me, not a floor above within the building, but right above my head, out in the open air. For some reason I couldn't then define, it felt absolutely gravely imperative that I not look up, that I not visibly acknowledge the thing, lest some awful but indefinable doom should befall me. This feeling froze me in place, and I kept my eyes trained on the now lifeless parking lot, as if I were really, really fascinated by the old woman's inappropriately large SUV. My self-applied spell of immobility was involuntarily broken when I heard the sound again, this time from inside of my apartment. I spun around, my heart already racing, and scanned the lazily furnished interior, but saw only my half-eaten breakfast dinner and the other unimportant objects into furniture of my singly occupied home. There was no one in sight, and yet that eerily foreboding feeling arose again, that impulse to keep my cool, to not make it obvious that I was aware something wasn't right. After taking a few deep breaths, I stepped back into my apartment, shutting the sliding door behind me. As normally and calmly as I could manage, I returned to my seat at the table, picked up my fork and resumed eating my omelette. 
which unfortunately had been cooled by the night's chill air. Still, I chewed as if nothing was wrong with it, all the while feeling like there was someone watching me, just behind my shoulder, just out of sight. I heard the sound again, this time inside of my head. Right after that, some unconscious but paradoxically hyper-aware part of me practically screamed, Don't think about it. Whatever you do, don't think about the noise. Think about something else. Panicking, I tried to think about something else. My workout, how good it had made me feel. But my mind kept saying, Relax, relax. And then of course, internally, I asked myself, if nothing's wrong, why would you need to relax? And the feedback just kept looping like this. My anxiety and terror mounted along with it, intertwining and culminating into a paroxysm of tremors and sweating. Unable to bear the maddening internal dialogue any longer, I quickly and clumsily rose from the table, nearly knocking over my protein mix in the process, and lurched towards the sliding door hoping that the cold night air would help relax me. I dreaded to hear the sound again, hoped that I would be allowed a brief respite from its physically harmless but psychologically torturous effects. Now outside, clutching the rim of the concrete balcony, I tried to get myself under control, but couldn't help but feel as if I were in the throes of some awful yet unknowable ordeal. The night was starless, which I for some reason thought was odd, even though my area always had a significant amount of light pollution. And there were no sounds brought to me from the street beyond, despite the complex's proximity to it. I feared that I was going insane, or had already gone insane. And naturally, my thoughts as to the cause first went to the pre-workout mix. I wanted to go back inside and check the label, Google anything that sounded exceptionally dubious. But before I could make it back inside, I heard the sound yet again. But I didn't just hear it. I made it. This time the sound came from my own mouth, which, without my conscious effort, had opened to allow the bizarre noise to issue from my throat. The sensation itself wasn't painful. The action of exhaling the necessary air but the feeling of having been physically violated by some yet-to-be-identified force of sonic mischief deeply unsettled me. A cry of my own making followed the disquietingly asynchronous and unmistakably electronic sound, which outsounded its predecessor and echoed out into the night. The idea that things would soon be over, that now that the sound had made its home in me, I was going to pass in only a few moments suddenly entered my thoughts and caused another stronger wave of mortal anxiety. I began sucking in air, hyperventilating like crazy, and tried to think of some way to relieve myself of the unwanted and cryptically pervasive voice before it was paradoxically produced again. Hey, can you guys hear me yet? Is this working? It wasn't my voice and yet the words came from my mouth. My hands clenched the balcony hard, my fingernails cracking against the concrete. My body felt weird, as if there was a consciousness or a spirit other than my own inhabiting it. 
I shut my mouth and clenched my jaw, hoping to prevent any further words from coming out. Next, instead of saying something, I heard something, a response to the question that I had asked only moments before. Yeah, we can finally hear you. What'd you do to fix it? From my mouth against my struggles. I don't know. Just disconnected and reconnected to the human. I think there is some kind of latency issue. Everything seems fine now. You guys around? The guys elsewhere. Yeah, same complex. No issues with our humans. How's yours looking? Me again. Always fine. Vitals are a bit wonky, but he seems to be some kind of fitness nut. There's a container of some energy mix nearby, and he seems pretty hyped up. Or maybe he's scared of the dark. He's outside on his balcony, gripping the edge like crazy. The comment about a potential fear of the dark hurt, because as a kid I had been afraid of it, before getting over the fear by sleeping outside in a tent with my stuffed animals at ten. Despite how unnerved I was, I indignantly let go of the balcony's edge to show the unseen possessor of my body that I wasn't afraid of the dark, even though I was definitely afraid of him. Just then, my mouth opened again, and more involuntarily spoken words left it. Hey, wait a minute, he just let go of the edge. Yeah, so? Well, I think it was because I had mentioned that he had been gripping it. That's impossible, he can't hear you. He doesn't have any idea what's going on. Yeah, uh, okay. Wait, you are using a secure, cross-cosmic connection, right? Well, yeah. At least I was, but then I had to disconnect. And just hit the fast reconnect option, thinking these settings would be the same. Would carry over. No, you idiot. You have to manually reset them. Otherwise, the host possession process can be detected by the host itself. Humans are annoyingly perceptive of remote body jacking, especially when it's done from beyond their galaxy. Well, I'm sorry, can I just disconnect and do it all over again? What? No. If he's aware of what's going on, then leaving and joining again won't change that. Eh, crap, alright. Well, can I just get rid of him and find another? Make him jump off the balcony. Are you stupid? Do you have the necessary admin privileges to do that to a human? We're technically not even supposed to hijack them while they're awake. And anyway, the humans have built-in survival instincts. While most of them do. Oh crap, crap. What am I supposed to do then? Uh, guys, bad news. Apparently some bootlicking random has been monitoring the chat on the server. He just reported unrepeatable name to the admins. And do you guys know what this means? It means that due to our genius friend here leaking our existence, they're going to have to terminate the whole server. They're going to destroy planet Earth. R.I.P. 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 Earth Bros. LMAO. How are they going to do it? Are they really going to invade the planet just because genius here screwed up with one worthless human? Nah, I think it's standard procedure is to launch a swarm of anti-planetary missiles at it. That'll of course take like a week, even with the new generation of FTL missile drives. Although I've heard of them just nudging supermassive black holes in the direction of the planet's star system. 
That'd be pretty cool, not gonna lie. Didn't they do that to like three planets in the Andromeda Galaxy a few years ago? Yeah, I think so. Well, alright, I guess I'll just disconnect from mine since this session is ruined. Maybe see if any of these subsurface Martian folk are free to remotely possess. Hey, unrepeatable name. Just disconnect from yours and leave them. You won't have to worry, even if they tell someone. The whole planet will be gone in like a week or two anyway. Alright, sounds good. Sorry guys, I'm getting off now. And that was it. The voice, the origin of the sound left me. Through no actual fault of my own, the world is going to end. But thanks to my pre-workout, which had apparently overstimulated my nerves, I was able to unwittingly resist the alien's remote body hacking, at least enough to where it couldn't occur without my awareness. So, I guess I'm sorry for trying to better myself. Hopefully, there's a sign of our imminent doom. Some auger of the coming destruction that'll allow us to defend ourselves. Or at least salvage some fraction of the species. Sorry, everyone. I know how many people needed 2022 to be a better year. My town is under government lockdown. Here's why. Written by Crimson Bayonet. Hi, my name is Alex and I live in this rather small farming town. We have a church in the hill and one very local grocery store and somehow there's a Dollar General too. Life here is rather simple and easy. I wake up, I turn on my studio and I broadcast music for the town. It's nothing special, just classic rock and some country but I made decent money off it. One thing I noticed our signal never goes past is the town borders. My only guess is that there is something to do with the magnetosphere, but I'm no scientist. About a year ago around the middle of August, something weird started happening. Military trucks and other large equipment started showing up in town. They took over the church as a base of operations. They even put large fences and barbed wire all around it. Whatever they were doing must have been serious. It wasn't but a few days after they did that they started testing the air raid siren that we have. The only way to really get to it was in my shed, as I owned the radio station, and enough power supply to run the siren, and the station if there was a blackout. So, guess what the boys did? If you said, annexed my station and shed, you are correct. It wasn't really a big deal, they sounded like they needed it for something. And they've been paying me twice what I was making, so I'm not really angry at all. So, I've been staying at my little brother's and his new wife's home for the past few years. The day that I moved in, it was all nice and happy. Until at exactly 1pm, all the military guys started corralling all the people to their homes in a rush too. They seemed scared like the whole lot of them had seen a ghost. It's a silly thought, I know. However, they weren't taking those as they were really rough with the townsfolk. Looking through the blinds, I see that they were all done getting everyone in their houses. Maybe they're running some sort of test. Well, it turns out that less than 10 minutes after that, we hear the siren go off. Stay inside and go to the nearest room without windows. If you can't, 
Close the blinds and cover your ears and eyes. This is not a drill. Do not leave for any reason. If someone is caught leaving, they will be marked as a threat. If you hear knocks at the window or door, do not answer it, even if it's family or friends and even if they're in a dire situation. Again, this is not a drill, and we will let you know when to come out. It went on with this same message for a few hours. I was in my room, which luckily is located in the basement. I could hear someone upstairs slamming on the doors, and I could hear my brother talking to his wife. We gotta check, honey. It's my friend, Aaron, he said in a hushed tone. I slowly walk up the stairs and hearing his wife say, Well, here, take your gun and at least be ready for anything. As I got to the top of the stairs, I creaked the door open to see what is going on. Aaron, I'm going to open the door, but you gotta run in fast, okay? I can hear a muffled, Hey, 10-4, buddy. It wasn't Aaron. It was something deep sounding that I felt. Immediate fear and I closed my door before they opened their front door. I heard Aaron say, And ye shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. After that, I heard shots fire. It was my brother, I'm sure of it. His wife Sammy was screaming and tried to come into the basement with me, but I locked the door. I heard the false Aaron walk up to Sammy as she was screaming. It was then that I heard the cracking and twisting of bone. Her cries went silent and so did the home. I could hear Aaron eating. I kept my face covered as the smell wafted through the air. I could see what was left of them flowing through the bottom of the basement door. It wasn't long when I heard this thing knock at my door. I know you can hear me, child. Do not be afraid, as we are here to cleanse these sinners leaving only the saints. You are not a sinner. You can let me in. I didn't know what to do. I was frozen, but it felt like it was speaking into my brain. The sound of horns were ringing in my head. Child, you cannot ignore me. I am all that was and will be. I know you. I uncovered my ears and checked up the stairs. I noticed the door got unlocked, so I yelled back. What did you do to my brother? What is it that you want? At this point, I'm nearly pissing myself in fear. Your brother and his wife committed a grave, unforgivable sin. We cannot let it slide. Let me in, child. You need not be afraid. I sat there thinking, and I slowly walked up the stairs. It felt autonomous and I couldn't stop my own movement. There is no fighting this. You are a saint and you will obey and listen. I do not know what to do at this point. What did he mean that I'm a saint? It was then that I slowly started to twist the doorknob. At full force, the sirens were wailing once again. And I regained my consciousness and composure. I quickly locked the door again and ran down the stairs. I could hear the thing say, We will meet again, my child. 
Go now, on God's good grace. This voice was loud and thundered in my head, leaving my ears to ring. I could only hear the siren afterward, and what sounded like giant wings flapping in the distance. Civilians, the coast is clear. I repeat, the coast is clear. We ask you to stay in your home so we can do some research. Please bear with us a little longer, thank you. It clicks off and these sirens start to die down. It wasn't but a few minutes when I hear, Oh my god, they've got another. Search the house for any survivors. I slowly opened the door and yelled, I'm alive, please help me. It was then that the door swung open as a large man pulled me into the kitchen. I found myself around five men armed to the teeth pointing guns at me. Test him, one guy said. I was immediately shoved against the wall and the guy, testing me, grabbed my arm and stuck a small needle and injected something. What are you doing to me? They all stared at me, waiting for a reaction, however, nothing happened. They all collectively sighed in relief and the one that tested me said, You're coming with us. We have to ask you some questions. I looked around and the bodies of my brother and sister-in-law weren't there. All I could see was a black ash scattered throughout the kitchen and by the front door. What happened to them? I asked. They seemed to ignore my question and we walked outside. I could hear crying throughout the town. It looked like entire families were just erased out of existence. Some people never came out to look around. They were all probably scared out of their mind. I'm not even sure how many disappeared, but it had to have been in the dozens. We arrived at the old church. They opened up the front gate and they let us in. I can see that it was being patrolled by drones. Everywhere that I looked, there was a camera and no one was stationed outside. We get inside and it looks like they removed all the pews on the altar. Countless days I spent praying with my brother in these very halls. Running around the pews after hours while our father talked to the priest. I started to cry. I missed the little brother I once raised and played with. Seeing all that stripped and replaced by all kinds of machines, cables and chairs. Almost a hundred different monitors, each with a person watching hours of surveillance footage. My brother gets slaughtered like a lamb and now this. It was way too much to handle. I broke into tears and so I shouted, Okay, I'm here now, so what the heck do you want? Sir, we know this is all too much, but we have to talk to you. I calmed down a little. I never was confrontational, so... I took a deep breath and I kept following them. They led me into the basement. There was high-end security scanning their eyes and it looks like a robot arm came out of the wall and poked them with a needle. Must be the same stuff that they had used on me. We passed through the security and walked down a hallway to a room at the end. This was the pastor's room. He had lived in the church but he had passed a few years back. He was a good man. It feels kind of wrong going into his room. How many hours had this man poured into his community to save us in a time of sorrow? I remember it like it was yesterday. My father passed away when I was 16, leaving the radio station to me. I remember the priest here consoled me and said, 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It was a beautiful funeral. The whole town came by and hugged my brother and I. We only had each other at this point, so I made it my mission to always take care of him. I saw the photo my dad and the priest took together. He was so happy back then before mom ran off. He was hardworking and always gave his time to help others in need. A good man. I'm happy that I got to know my father and remember talking to the priest in this room about some of the funny things about him. The memories come flooding back and I began to whelp a little. I took a deep breath, in and out. I had to swallow my feelings down as I was disassociating. It was then that I was asked to sit at the old oak table and to wait here. The man who had escorted me here asked if I needed anything. Uh, a Coke? I said, quietly holding my face in my hands. I got it. The officer left the room. A few minutes later, someone else entered with two Cokes and a notepad. Hello. He looked at his notepad. Alex. I'm the leader of this op, and we have some questions about what you saw. Yeah, you asked for a coke, right? He handed it to me, and I took it, opened it, and took a large gulp after I let out a sigh. I want to know where my brother and sister-in-law are before I answer anything. The man looked me in the eyes and took his sunglasses off, and I saw his eyes. They were all white like he had, cataracts. Your brother and sister-in-law are gone. We cannot help them now. He sighed and rubbed the back of his neck. Then you survived and resisted. We need to know why. I slammed my hands on the table. No, people don't just disappear. He tossed a file that he was holding in the notepad to me. Read. It'll explain everything. I opened the file. Inside was a series of pictures and notes. The pictures looked to be giant winged bees of just floating eyes and wings. This was in front of my home. I started to sweat and I turned to the next image. The bees changed shape into Aaron. And then the last picture was a grabbing my, bro my brother's head and ripping it off. I remember dropping the pictures and throwing up on the floor. What is that thing? The man put his glasses back on and handed me a tissue. It's an angel, Alex. Your brother and sister-in-law committed a sin. I'm sorry, but they're gone. We don't know where they took them, but it looks like that they're just gone. With no trace but black ashes that aren't even made of carbon. It's an element that we have yet to classify. I got myself together and asked, Why are you guys wanting to talk to me then? I didn't do any of this. He pointed to the file and said, Keep looking. As I was flipping through, the angel turned back to its normal form, and you can see straight into the home past the kitchen to the door that I was behind. But I wasn't. I was in front of the door, and I was staring at it. Why? Why didn't it attack me? The agent took the files back and said, very few people survive this, so let's get down to the point.
You are a saint. Somehow, you are on a whitelist with these things. And so far, you and I are the only known ones. He sighs and says, That's why we came here. To find you. Everyone else in this town is either gone or scared out of their mind. We have to make them forget everything. I grabbed my head in confusion, running my hands through my jet black hair in a feeble attempt to calm myself. Why me? I said quietly. I could feel my heart racing. Heat was rushing to my face. You never committed a sin, and it's physically impossible for you to do as well. You can continue your life here, or you can choose to come with us. But in a year, they will come back. I thought to myself, I've got nothing left. My family is all gone, and my job was taken from me. I want to stay, but I feel like I'm safe with these people. I, I can... Can we wait a year to see what happens? I asked shakily. Yes. We will monitor the area, however, every year on August the 16th, this will happen again. We already sealed the area around the town off so no radio communication can enter or leave this place. We may ask you to come out during the event so we can monitor you. I took another large drink of my soda. Okay, I'll do it. With the idea of talking to the thing that took my only family away, I was furious. Shortly after, I was released and I went home. It's July now and nothing has happened since, and the missing townsfolk were replaced with agents, but no one other than me seemed to notice. Life has been normal and I was allowed to use my radio again. I'm counting down the days until this happens again. Will I be prepared? How can I stop them? I don't know. What I know is that the days draw closer, and I can hear the whispering of them above, and I know that they're watching. Once they come down here, I will know where my brother is. My brother and his wife's screams are burned into my brain. Another issue is the trumpets are getting louder, and I'm starting to hear chanting and bells chiming. It's day in and day out, nonstop. I've been contemplating ending it. I find myself about to go down that hole of no return and welcome the release of death. However, anytime I get brave enough and I'm about to do it, I black out. I wake up usually on my bed, where I was sitting before thinking about doing it. Whatever is going on, whatever these things want is beyond me, and that's not the worst of it. It's when I sleep that's when, that's when the true nightmare begins. I feel like if I tell you guys this, it may help me cope just a little bit. The last message I sent out, everyone was rather nice. It's so much to unpack and if you have a weak stomach, please skip ahead if you want to. It all started last night. My dream while nightmare began with just a black canvas. It was just me mindlessly drifting in a seemingly infinite void. But I couldn't wake up or move. That's all there was, just me in the dark floating. I started to panic, as it still to this very minute feels real, and with that, it felt like this won't ever end. In my head, what felt like decades pass as I float in pure darkness with only my thoughts. 
It wasn't much longer. Maybe a year or two. It's hard to tell to be honest. That I started seeing something in the distance. Slowly approaching me or was I approaching it? In the distance, there was a long hallway with no end. The hallway looked like the hospital halls that I used to frequent. It reminded me of how my dad lost his life to cancer. All the years that we spent, the countless hours crying and praying for him to get better. So yeah, I know these halls as if they were my home. It was scary how accurate this was, down to the light blue stripe and the off-white color of the walls. I finally floated to this hall and landed on the floor. I kept looking at the checkered pattern floor, thinking to myself, and how life would be different if my father had survived, if my mother never ran away, would my brother still be alive? Sorry for getting a little emotional, I just have to let you guys know exactly how it was. I decided to swallow my fears and judgment. As I walked down the hall, the only sound was my heavy footsteps echoing in the vast emptiness. After what seems like miles of walking, I came across the door. It, it's my father's room. I see a light on at the bottom of the door, and I can hear something else. It was my dad calling out to me. And so, I rushed through the door and saw my dad looking like he did long ago, young and healthy. I instantly rushed in and hugged my father. His cologne smelled as strong as it used to. His hug back was warm and inviting. I haven't felt this happy in my life. There, there, champ. My, oh my, you've grown. Look at how strong you are. You're as strong as an ox. My father said robustly. Hey, thanks, Papa. I've been working out a lot to help with depression. You don't know about losing you was the hardest thing in my life. Well, where's little Donnie? I've missed him too. My dad tried to look behind me at the door, expecting my goofball brother to burst in. Pops, Donnie. And before I could say a word... He jumps out of the closet and yells, Dad, you're alive. I don't know how to process this. I saw my brother's ashes. Donnie, how are you even here? My brother looked at me. I don't rightly know how to be honest. I was opening my door for my buddy Aaron, and the next thing I know, I fell out of the closet. As my brother and father hug and catch up, I take a few deep breaths and ran my fingers through my hair, trying to find a way to tell my brother what happened. As I turn around and open my mouth, I hear the trumpets in full force. My head feels like it was going to explode. It was then that I see a grotesque, massive wings circling astronomical rings. On these rings were bloodshot red eyes of varying sizes and colors. Its very presence was a distorting space around it. Its mere existence was causing my eyes to blur and my mind to raise. As it spoke to me, I could see the axis of all creation emerging and twisting. I was able to manage to say, What do you want? The being stopped moving. The sound of its rings were making was akin to rusty metal being wrapped. The song of metal scraping against metal is all that I can hear, and in an instant, I heard nothing. The darkness was all gone. 
I looked around and time was frozen, and all there was was me and it. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places, wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods, upon the higher mountains, upon the hills, and upon every green tree. It spoke to me. It felt like my very soul was shaken and I couldn't stand on my own feet. What does that even mean? Why are you doing this? I let out with all my remaining strength. I took a deep breath and was able to pull myself up and stare this thing down. My child, you know not of what's to come. You must follow. I am your shepherd and you are my flock. Listen to your heart and hear my love and feel my intent. All of this is but a fleeting existence to the greater tomorrow. Child, even your family here are nothing but mere devices in a greater story. Screw you. I said as loud as I could push out my exhausted body. Child, I gave you what you wanted most, yet you still deny me. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It said... The sound of fluttering wings is all that I heard. Time returned normally. I turned to see my family and my brother and my father. Something was wrong. They were staring at me with massive grins. Unhuman grins. Their smile kept growing and slowly. I could hear the squelching of their flesh tearing as their faces distorted. I reached out to them to try and stop whatever this was but I was frozen forced to watch. Red was pouring from their mouths and they were crying as they feebly reached out to me. I could see their arms outstretched, twitching, as they lost full the control of their own body. It was then that I heard the trumpets again, but this time, it was a distorted as a plate of key. It was then that my brother grabbed his bicep on his right arm and dug his fingers into it. Red rushed out and sprayed on the floor as he continued to dig. The sound of things snapping and sloughing off his arm was sickening. I watched in forced horror as my brother pulled his muscles out of his own arm and painted the room in a dark red hue. In a short time, I heard my father start to gurgle too. I reeled back to look at him, but I wish I never did. His body was melting as a dark black liquid started to extrude out of every possible opening on his head. The smell was awful, but yet pungent. I watched and that's all that I could do, as I saw my father slowly turn into a puddle. His very body melting in my own hands, and his bones crumbling to dust. I was left alone again. Even the walls around the room started to decay. The darkness swallowed me once again. Shortly after, I felt it watching me. I swear that I can hear this thing that took my family a second time was weeping. After I turned to see it, it was crying tears of red. I felt nothing but anger as I yelled every curse word in the book and I ended my tirade with, I will never help you or your kind. I will let this world burn before I bow to a monster like you. Shortly after I woke up, I sprang out of bed and splashed water on my face. The horns, the sounds this thing were plaguing me with had stopped. A moment of short reprieve. 
These images of my family are still in my head. Why am I chosen to bear this burden, whatever it may be? Sometimes the good has wicked intent, I suppose. Recently, the town folk have been acting really strange and last night was even worse at this point, and I'm fearing that these things are going to take me too. It all started in the morning. It felt normal at first. I woke up, made coffee, and ate some eggs in a basket, just like my father used to make. I decided to turn on my radio tower and to start broadcasting my music, as I normally would, when what seems like a woman started pounding on my window. Immediately, this made me spill my boiling hot coffee on my freshly pulled out of the dryer pants. I yelled in pain. Oh, what the? Once I pulled myself together... I see this woman staring at me through my window. She was covered in blood. Her eyes were as white as marbles and she was smiling. Shortly after, she started banging on the window again, this time, and I got to see it. Her hands were missing, and it was just a stub with bits of flesh hanging on it. I dropped down behind my desk and I almost vomited. This lady was my neighbor, Mrs. Jacobson. Normally, she would come by and hand me the newspaper. She and I weren't friends more, just friendly neighbors, and just my mail would often end up at her place. I didn't know what to do as she continued to pound on the window, with each consecutive hit making a sickening noise as the stomp slapped on my window, leaving more and more red behind. I stayed behind my desk as the image of her unearthly smile was burned into my brain. It wasn't more than a few minutes when she stopped. It was then that I decided to slowly peek over the edge. I just saw her standing there, staring at me. No, through me. I could feel her gaze pierce my soul. She slowly opened her mouth and it started to stretch and in human length, as her mouth easily grew to be about one foot long. What do you want from me? I yelled. She just kept looking with her mouth wide open. It was at this moment that I went to the window and just shut the blinds. I could hear her yelling. Nothing that makes sense, it was more just random ghoulish howling, with a voice that was far too deep for her. I called the government guys in the church. Hey, you guys said I should call if anything is out of the ordinary. Well, right now, Mrs. Jacobson is outside my home banging on my window with a knob and screaming like she's possessed. I waited a few seconds and heard nothing. Hello? I asked annoyed. Eh, we've sent a team. Lock your doors and don't let anyone or anything in. I looked around and just said, Okay, can do. My office where I run the radio out of has very heavy oak doors. It was carved by my father and was made so thick and heavy that it blocked out sound from our house. My guess was so no ambient noise could bother his work. I rushed to my office doors and right before I can close it, I heard my front door burst open. It was her. She lifted her only hand pointed at me with her freakishly open mouth, and this time her eyes were completely white. She screamed an ungodly scream and started a full-on sprinting at me. Now my hallway was not very long, but I was able to slam the door shut and deadbolt the door. She started banging on my door again, 
and I could barely hear her screams. It felt like hours of her just nonstop pounding by my door and screaming. I was stopped abruptly when I heard faint people yelling for her to get on the ground, shortly after followed by shots. I then hear the men yelling with screams. The bullets that they shot left small holes in my door, large enough for me to peek through. When I peered through one of the holes, I could see this crazy lady devouring these heavily armed men. The sounds that it made were awful. The twisting and grinding and crunching. I couldn't look away, but I was absolutely mortified by this beast of a woman that I thought she was. I kept looking at her grotesque features and noticed. Her body was healing slowly, growing together. The color in her skin was coming back. She slowly turned her head all the way around like she was an owl. I could hear her spine cracking from the pressure. She could sense me watching her. We locked eyes and she stood up and slowly turned around, keeping her eyes locked on me. It was then that she sprinted at the door, scaring the crap out of me, and I fell backwards, as I could see her eyes now bright white peering through one of the holes. She then spoke. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thy own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee, in the siege and in the straightness, wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. She spoke in a loud and thunderous tone. It was so loud that it made me disoriented. I yelled back, What do you want from me? As my vision slowly came back to normal, she spoke again. Child, you are a key part. You will recognize your role soon enough. Right after, I saw a bright white light and heard the sound of trumpets blaring. It felt like the whole world was shaking. Items were falling off my shelf and my roof cracked as the lights got brighter and hotter. It all stopped and the light vanished. The residual heat was still there, but Mrs. Robinson, or the thing she was, was gone. I opened the door slowly. All I saw were the bodies of the men and ashes on the floor. My carpet was stained a dark crimson, and the smell of iron and burnt popcorn filled the air. I decided to shut my door and lock it again, and called the command center that was in the church. They asked what had happened, and I explained it all and told them, Come get these men off my floor, and I'm not leaving this room until it's safer. I will not be destroyed by some old lady. On the other end, all I hear is, Understood, you need to stay safe there and bunker down. I hung up and started leaving this note. Right now, they're cleaning the carpets and removing all the evidence. I overheard them saying that they found a slime of some of the bodies. I don't know what to do. Whatever happens next, I sure hope I can end these dang monsters. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. These words have been stuck in my head, playing on repeat like a broken record. I can feel my sanity fading as sleep deprivation sets in. I feel like there are eyes watching my every move. People narrating my every thought and feelings. 
I even stopped playing music as more and more townsfolk go missing. It's only a handful that are left from the town originally. For the people who tried to help me, the holy water in the church is locked up for some reason, and I did sew some crosses on me. The pain of doing so wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. It's nothing compared to the mental anguish I've been dealing with. So thank you all for the kind words and suggestions. Recently, besides the constant scripture running in my head, and the occasional townsfolk hulking out and attacking more soldiers, it's been quiet. No one really leaves their home. I don't get calls about the radio, and everyone seems to be surviving off the government rations that they have been giving us. If anyone was wondering, it's pretty bland. Just boxes of potato flakes, off-brand water that tastes like pool water, and bread with some bologna that looks gray in color. Day in and day out, I feel like I'm not being protected but contained, like a prisoner. They even stopped answering my calls, which started this morning. However, some real stuff went down and I'm not sure if anyone other than me and maybe some of the town is still alive. It was shortly after I got ignored when I tried to call into the HQ and report a body in the street. It wasn't more than five or ten minutes when I started hearing the horns again. This time, I learned the horns only played when someone was being targeted. I know this seems inhumane to say this, but I made test subjects out of my neighbors. Once I hear the horns, I go to all my windows and I look around. See what or who was being targeted and like clockwork, I hear it. Someone begins to scream. And then silence. After so many times that this has happened, I become numb to the cries of the people. I can't stop thinking. They are the lucky ones being taken out and not having to live with these things for much longer. I'm pulling away from the point so that after the horns this morning... I looked around all over town and saw nothing this time. I kept looking and it seems that they were all safe somehow. Shortly after, I heard gunfire coming from the church. They're being taken down. I started to hear someone calling out to me. A voice that was very familiar but I couldn't make it out. All of a sudden, my body moved on its own accord. It was helplessly moved toward the church. It's terrifying to think that you have no control over your own body, safety, or life. With this all left to the will of these angels. Last I checked, angels don't devour humans. At least it was never spoken about. As I started to pass the first gate, the smell of gunpowder and blood attacked my senses. It was so powerful that my eyes began to burn, and I could taste it in the back of my throat. My body slowly marched toward the front door. Bullets were still flying through the door. One struck me. The pain was unbearable, but it was only just the beginning. I could sense time slowing down, or maybe my senses were speeding up. The bullets that went through the door also had pierced my chest, my arms, and neck. Each bullet ripped into me, had me experiencing the pain for what felt like years, as time seemed to froze. I was feeling the projectiles tear into me, and I felt every inch give way to the metal. As much as I wanted to, I couldn't cry out in pain or run away. The tearing of my body 
had gotten so extreme I felt like I was going to expire any second. Have you ever felt your heart being pierced by hot lead? Or have the feeling of your chest cavity fill with liquid? This must be hell. I thought as my body slowly marched forward, the smoke in the church began to clear, and I saw the absolute chaos that had unfolded. Bodies were everywhere, and they were laying in ways that reminded me of a horror movie. People fused together in the floor, faces missing. One of them I stepped on, making a squelching noise as my foot peeled away a layer of them. No matter what I did or thought, I couldn't stop. My body felt like it was being controlled like a puppet on strings. When I got to the basement, the door was ripped off the hinges with the door itself pushed into the wall. Flashbacks as a child ran through my mind. I remember playing hide-and-seek in this basement with some of the other kids in the town, many of which I've seen eating other people in all this chaos. I remember my brother and I hiding behind a stack of chairs. We pressed ourselves as low to the ground as we could. We giggled as someone nearly found us. We only got up when we could hear the other boys yell, Alright, we give up. Y'all can come out now. As we stood up, I saw a black dot on my brother's neck. Shortly after, he had yelled in pain and ran out. It was a black widow who had bit him. My brother was rushed to the hospital, which was almost an hour away, and I held his hand and kept telling him, It'll be okay. It was just a small spider. You'll be fine. Of course, my brother was milking the attention. Some of the best acting I have ever seen was from this moment. After a few hours in the hospital, he was discharged and ever since then, he had been afraid of spiders. This memory, even with all the pain and crazy stuff, made me smile. It was a relief that was short-lived as I approached the pastor's quarters. The lights in the hall were flickering and to the left and right of me, people were standing at the wall looking at me, all of them with jet black eyes and pale skin. The people of this town were just meat suits for these things. I've grown a hatred for them, parading around doing unholy things in people who I considered were friends and family. Even when I tried to think of memories that I had with them, the images of these things were replacing them, corrupting my very thoughts. As I passed all these people, I finally got to the door. It flew open by itself and I could hear the crunching of bone. It was my brother. He was eating the blind agent. I could only wait as he was in a trance-like state. I was forced to watch my little brother, or what was my little brother, eat the eyes of this person. After the thing was full, he stood up and turned toward me. Looking in my eyes, his eyes were dark and it showed no light. It was all black and I could feel an overwhelming sense of malice as it just stared at me. My body was still unable to move as it slowly closed the distance. With each step, the feeling of dread grew and it felt like my heart was getting louder. I could only think to myself, is this what true fear feels like? Will I live for another moment? He got in front of me and said one thing. A war is coming, and you are a major piece in it. Will you stand by humanity or those winged beasts whom watch over and terrorize you? I cannot make the choice for you, child, but know this. I do love you. This oddly felt genuine, 
and the feelings of dread and malice were dissipating. I don't know how to describe it other than it felt natural. Child, I will not harm your brother as he agreed to help me speak to you. The angels above cast him aside like a broken toy. However, I found use in the boy, and together we can take over the heavens. Pray that we succeed, for I have seen the throne of God and it was empty. Who was he? What was he? Suddenly, this being reached down and tapped my forehead, sending me into a deep sleep. I woke up nearly instantly and was in a panic. Covered in sweat and I surveyed my surroundings. Everything was too quiet. So I rushed to look out the window toward the church and it was all normal again. I quickly called the operation leader and they instantly picked up. Yes, Alex, are you okay? How are they alive? I saw my brother eat him in front of my own two eyes. I replied in a rushed and worried tone. What day is it? How long have I been asleep? Well, it's Sunday, and I would say you've been silent for two days. I guess that old lady really stressed you out. How you feeling? I could hear typing in the background as if he was typing down our conversation. I'm fine, just had a really bad dream. How many people in the town are left? I asked. Most of them are left. Why? Everything okay? At this point, I decided to look outside. And I saw people walking around and talking like nothing had happened. I'll be okay, thank you. It must have been just a vivid dream. And so I hung up, not wanting to speak about it anymore. I didn't want to go through it again. After, I fell backward onto my bed, breathing in deep and letting it out. The trumpets are not playing, and it was just silence. I'm still shaken up by this since it felt so real. So I'm going to start my radio up and pretend nothing happened. There's one question on my mind. Can my brother still be saved? I may never know. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6.12 What is time? Is it just a construct of a man to keep with the pace of our existence, or is it something more malleable? I can't shake the feeling that I've done this all before. The existential dread of this whole situation seems so familiar. Alright, sorry, you don't know who I am. My name is Alex and I live in this rather small farming city. We have a church on a hill and one very local grocery store. And somehow there's a Dollar General too. Life here is rather simple and easy. I wake up, I turn on my studio and I broadcast music for the town. It's nothing special, just a classic rock in some country, but I make decent money off of it. Recently, I've been experiencing stranger and stranger events. But it all feels like a dream. It all started when military trucks and other large equipment were being hauled into town. They took over the church as a base of operations, I'm guessing. They even put large fences and barbed wire all around it. Whatever they were doing had to be serious. They came to my door and asked to use the air raid siren. The only way to access it was to enter my shed and turn it on manually. When I told them this, they just said, That's fine. 
We'll just go into your backyard once a week and run a test, so don't mind us. I cocked my head a little, as I could have sworn that I had heard this before. Yeah, that's fine. Just knock on the door before you go back there, just in case. I'm in a stand-your-ground state, so I didn't want to catch a charge for taking out a trespasser. They just looked at me and smiled and said, We'll do, Chief. And then left and got into the truck and drove off. I looked around and across the street from me, and I could see my brother mowing his lawn. So I walked up to him wanting to speak. Hey, big bro. He stopped the engine of his mower. Hey, little dude, how have you been? How's the wife doing? He smiled and said, Great, but we have big news. I looked at him puzzled. Well, what is it? Sammy's pregnant. We just tested this morning, and I feel like since you've helped me so much in life, you can be the baby's official godparent and uncle, of course. I cracked a large smile ear to ear. Wow, I'm so happy for you guys. My brother then just put his arms around me, and we shared a hug. It was nice considering all that we've been through together. Why don't we have dinner here tonight? I'm grilling ribs and the wife is making potato salad. You know, it's your favorite. Hmm, that sounds perfect. I've been wanting some home-cooked meals. I've been swamped with work and school recently. He just said, Alright, I'll see you then, but I need to mow. It won't cut itself. I waved goodbye and walked back to my home so I could start the next playlist on the radio. I get back home and when I open the door, a wave of emotion hits me like a ton of bricks. I started crying but I don't know why. My heart is racing and I could feel anxiety rushing in. I tried composing myself enough to get to my bed, but I just laid there sobbing. Why am I sad? Why is this happening? I thought to myself. Shortly after, I get a knock on my door. It somehow pulled me out of the anxiety attack, which was good. I opened it, and a man with what looked to be cataracts in his eyes greeted me. Hello, Mr. York. How are you? I looked at him a bit puzzled. Just call me Alex, and I'm doing fine. Can I help you? I felt a bit put off by this man. He looked to be blind, but he climbed up the stairs without aid, and he drove here. Oh yes, we need to use the siren and we want you to stay inside for a few hours. It's for your own safety. I started to panic a little bit but kept it under so he wouldn't notice. Sure thing, it's back in the shed. The man looked at me and just said, Thank you. Just lock your door and close your blinds. The siren will tell you the rest. I said, Well, aren't you going to be in danger too? He just started to walk away and yell out, I'll be fine, Alex. The anxiety was welling up my throat again, so in a hurry, I locked my door and closed my blinds. Shortly after, I heard the sirens go off. Stay inside and go to the nearest room without windows. If you can't, close the blinds and cover your eyes and ears. This is not a drill. Do not leave for any reason. If someone is caught leaving, they will be marked as a threat. If you hear knocks at the window or door, do not answer it even if it's family or friends, and even if they're in a dire situation. Again, this is not a drill, and we will let you know when to come back out. It's oddly specific. 
I hope my brother will be okay. I waited there in my office and I heard a song on the radio playing and it was one of my favorite hits. Time is on my side by the Rolling Stones. It reminded me of my father a lot. Him and mom used to sing this song to us. The Rolling Stones were his favorite band. But all this daydreaming was cut short as I heard a shot across the street. I peeked through my blinds and I see my brother. He was being attacked. This thing that looked like our friend Aaron but with grotesque and elongated limbs with a massive jaw. My instincts told me to hide but I couldn't. I couldn't let my brother get hurt. So I ran out and I sprinted toward his home. I needed to catch my breath but I could see his front door ripped off its hinges. I was about to look inside, being cautious. Maybe I can catch this thing off guard, I thought to myself. So I peered into his home. It was the worst thing that I could imagine. A fine mist of red lingered in the air. I can taste it in the back of my throat. I almost gagged when I looked further in. It was Sammy. This thing was devouring Sammy. It sat hunched over her body, just feasting. I blacked out. After a while, I quickly regained consciousness, and I see the figure stand up with no sign of my brother or his wife. No blood on the floor, just a pile of black ash. The thing turned to me, but as we locked eyes, it started to distort my vision. Every time I tried to focus on it, it would disappear. But I look slightly away and in my peripherals, it looked to have changed its shape. A mass of wings, seven, no eight of them, circling something in the middle of it all. It slowly glided to me and I was frozen in place, unable to move or react. My chest felt like it was going to explode. And then it spoke. Its voice sounded like a rusty can being scraped by a fork with the faint sound of horns in the distance. Its thunderous voice shook my very existence as it spoke and it said, Be not afraid, child. You will be saved as you are a saint. I keep thinking back to where I've heard this and I can't remember. Was it a dream? In that moment, the massive wings slowly moved toward me. In that moment, everything went black. I saw things I couldn't make out darting across the void in my mind. I had a scream in my ear and what got louder was the sound of a trumpet. Six blasts from a trumpet. No, it was seven. The thunderous voice spoke in my dreamscape. We will meet again, child. A war is coming. I woke slowly but in the distance. I could hear the flapping of wings and the siren go off once more. Civilians, the coast is clear. I repeat, the coast is clear. We ask you to stay in your home so we can do some more research. Please bear with us a little longer, thank you. Within mere seconds, I was surrounded by men armed to the teeth. Holy crap, he's alive! One of them picked me up and three other men rushed into my brother's home. What happened to my brother? I was still barely able to stand on my own. My head was still spinning. He's gone, I'm sorry. I gained a bit more consciousness and realized what he just said. What do you mean, gone? I was fuming. Something had just eaten my brother and his wife. 
but we can't explain right now. We just go home and rest and we'll send someone to speak to you. I reluctantly walked back, but what can I do? Fight the armed men who were just trying to help me. It wasn't their fault. I clambered back into my home and went straight to my bed and I collapsed. I can't put my finger on it, but I sense a deja vu. It's all too familiar and I can't shake this feeling. As I laid on my bed, I relive in the thoughts of my brother dying and seeing his wife being devoured. This whole thing seems so surreal. It wasn't but an hour later when I heard knocking at my door. I got up to answer it and to my surprise, it was the same blind man. Hello, Mr. York. I need to speak with you. I waved him in and sat at the kitchen table. Can I get you anything to drink? Um, what's your name? He smiled. My name is Lucy and yes, do you have a Coke? I blinked a few times. Alright Lucy, coming right up. I brought two cans of Coke. Slid him his across my table. So, what was that thing and what do you want from me? He takes a deep sip of his drink and lets out a sigh. Oh, Alex, we know who you are and what you are. Haven't you felt like you've done this all before? It's time to give up on resisting, Alex. We need you. I looked at him puzzled and asked, What do you mean? He stood up and placed his glasses on the table. His eyes were pitch black. Light didn't even shine in them. It was all empty, like an endless void. I, uh... What's wrong with your eyes? He chuckled lightly. Oh, don't worry, child. Join my cause and we shall return your brother. I started to sweat. My heart was racing faster than my mind. Who and what is this man? It was then that he reached out and grabbed my hand. I was unable to move as I saw the future. Life and death, the start of the universe and the decay of it all flooded my mind. I felt I was everywhere at the same time. He suddenly let go and all the vision stopped. Do you understand now, child? We were destined to take over the heavens. You were meant for greater things. I, I can't believe it so, I asked. This is all too much right now. Can we do this later? He shook his head. You have until midnight or all of this will come full circle. I looked at him and he let out a long sigh. Fine, I need to do something first. He just got up and walked out of the door. It looked like he understood. So, here I am now. I know it's a lot to unpack, but I can't shake this feeling of deja vu. Once again, I would like to thank you guys so much for sticking around throughout all of the stories. I hope you're having a wonderful morning, day or night, wherever you may be. I'd also like to give another big thank you to today's sponsor, ShipStation. Use my offer code, MrCreeps, to get a 60-day free trial. Go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in MrCreeps. Until next time, my friends... I'm wishing you all the best in everything that you do, and as always, stay creepy.